the largest country in Latin America in terms of population, landmass, and economy is a crown worn indisputably by Brazil. But the history of this land, spanning four time zones and over five centuries of development, is one marked by tumultuous governance and political conflict, with different crowns worn by monarchs, military dictatorships, and democratic politicians alike, ruling over a teeming population of millions of former slaves, colonists, and wannabe conquistadors. Tonight, we are joined by Lance from Lance's Legion to help us work out the nuances of this complex and fascinating country, as well as impart some of the political lessons of managing a large and complex demography with high rates of poverty and crime. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Tuto Bain, Gubragao. Tuto Ochimo. <laughs> What'd you say? I don't understand Portuguese, so you'll have to help me. Yeah, everything's great. And uh, okay. yes, it's uh, Super Zero Sai Mumugai Mumugai, right? Like Sam Hyde says. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going for. I'm so glad you know that. Um, he's hilarious when he, he does his Portuguese. Um, yeah. But I wasn't supposed to listen to those because he said, he gave the disclaimer, this is only for my Brazilian brothers out there. Uh, but we, ha- <laughs> we have one tonight. <laughs> uh, but you, you explain that, uh, Lance. This is a returning guest, uh, Lance from Lance's Legion. He has, um, he has some familiarity with Brazil. Uh, he's been there. Obviously, he speaks some of the language. But why don't you give a little bit of a backgrounder for people uh, to familiarize your connection with the place uh, just mm-hmm. sort of we orient like kind of your credibility and, and uh, credentials, I guess, on this, because I have none in Brazil and I wanted to understand more about this fascinating country. So, mm-hmm. um, well, for all my American friends out there, Mexico part two. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's it's absolutely not that. But um, my origins, I would say, is this. It's like, um, you know, my mom. She emigrated from there. She was a Brazilian model, and then she ended up marrying my dad. And uh, obviously, it's really funny because you meet people and they assume when you say Brazil, you, you say you think to, in your mind like what a person from Guatemala looks like. But few know that a lot of Brazilians look like Giselle Bunchen. You know what I mean? And basically, if you knew me, I mean, I'm probably more handsome than Giselle Bunchen. It's okay. But, um, but I actually basically... don't think she's the prettiest person I, I've <laughs> seen. Well, we're just talking about Brazilian supermodels. There's there's quite a few that are better looking than her. I don't know how she got so so big. She, she married Tom Brady or something. But um, <laughs> she's okay. But, you know, let's just, yeah. uh, let's just yeah, be real leave it here. At that. Yeah. But, but um, the interesting thing is that basically I've spent – 
especially in my childhood and adolescence, half my life here and half my life abroad. And a large portion of my abroad time was in Brazil. And, uh, you know, I'm fluent, obviously, read and write and, you know, et cetera. Um, so it's not just like uh, you meet your average leftist immigrant and they say they're from X, Y, or Z country and, and they can't even speak Spanish, let alone, you know, whatever, you know, native tongue they claim. Um, but in any case, I think uh, it's very interesting because, you know, my family from Brazil is tied closely with the military establishment there. I come from a long line of, you know, I guess um, the aristocracy from my mother's side. And um, uh, funny fact, there is an aristocracy, like a real one, not just like American aristocracy where we call someone that's important. You know, there's like actual blooded aristocracy from the time when the uh, Lusitanian king emigrated to Brazil and there's, you know, dukedoms and all that kind of stuff, which we'll get into in the show. Um, but I have a very close um, connection to it. And in addition to, of course, uh, being an avid reader of history, of military history, in addition to everything else. And so I hope that establishes my credentials. But as I reveal... Um, a lot of history really is not just simply regurgitating chronologically information. It's about the experience. It's about how certain events play into a collective psyche, how others perceive us, especially us Americans. And I consider myself American. I, you know, like I have, I'm only American citizen. You know, I have nothing else. I'm loyal to this country. I don't have any dual citizenships or dual loyalties or anything like that. Um, you know, and culturally speaking, I'm very American. So, you know, every time I go to Brazil, I'm called gringo anyway. So, you know, it is what it is. Well, I but, keep hearing uh, I on the internet the about the reason we're in the Middle East is because all those Brazilians control in Congress. So <laughs> yeah. I beg to well, differ based on, in, on the in, internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Brazilians in Hollywood, um, um, unbelievably, it's, 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 it's a cabal. Yeah, those Brazilians you know? in Wall Street and Hollywood, <laughs> Silicon Valley. <laughs> The media, yeah. God, they keep they keep messing up. Uh, mm-hmm. Got to do something about those guys. So hopefully we can shed some light on that. <laughs> but but um, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, I I've met some people from Brazil. Um, they're they're all very nice. Uh, pretty much to a T. I, I really like the the personality when it comes to non work related things. I've never actually worked with them, although I have been in uh academic settings with a couple of them and they're okay but uh they we were chatting about this before there's something called brazilian time which i definitely noticed um they're they're not exactly 30 minutes late (laughs) yeah it's like hey the party's gonna be at five and it's like 7 30 and it's like where the hell are they and (laughs) And they show up you know with a bottle of beer it's funny it's funny because it's like bad manners to show up on time or even 15 or 30 minutes after the stated time. It's like it's meant it's really funny because you're meant to show up casually and in good graces in the person that is able to arrive the latest and garner the most attention when you get to that party mm-hmm. that's the highest social standing you possibly get. It's mm-hmm. pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in um it was like this group of Brazilians, uh, gosh, 15 plus years ago and, uh, just hanging out with some of them. And we went to this guy's house for a party and he was a very 
I mean, so I was looking at the demographics of Brazil. It's extremely unique. Uh, it, it is probably one of the most mixed race countries on the planet. And it's it's technically considered like more than half or not, not more than half, but the, the majority or the plurality, I should say, technically of, of the country is, is got some mixed ancestry. And then like 40% is white. And then the rest is like black and others. But this guy, I don't know what his ancestry was, but he was clearly mixed. So I don't know if they call that some variant of mestizo or something like that, but good looking guy, very charismatic. And, and he worked in like a tech company. And so it wasn't like he was, um, like a day laborer or something. And he, he was, he had a lot going for him, but I remember in particular, what, what was so striking about that was he, he had like a, a very, he had an aura about him and he had all these people around him at his party, but his apartment was the most Spartan, boring thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it had like a bed. There yeah. was nothing on the wall. There was like <laughs> nothing in the kitchen except like a plate or a cup or something. And it was just, it was just him and his social life. And he probably wasn't even there that much, but it was just, it was so interesting to see kind of how that culture is built around that kind of socialization where there's not a lot right. of like pomp and circumstance. It's really about, kind of, hey, you know, just like, you know, it, it, like <laughs> got the food, got the women and it's like, uh, do the, do the Sam Hyde bit. And it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. And I don't know if it comes from like being on the beach or just living in the tropics, but it's so different than kind of your uptight, like party, everybody's like, even if you're a hipster or something, you still like spend like 40 minutes getting ready probably. And then you show up and you have to check your pronouns and all this garbage. And it's, it's much more loose. It's, <laughs> it's frankly, it's a lot more fun. Um, I, I don't know again, how good it is in business. I'd probably go nuts, but, um, they're, they're, <laughs> they're an interesting you'd people. Prob- probably lose your mind. <laughs> yeah, prob- probably. <laughs> well, probably. I mean, let yeah. me go, let me go into that actually. And I'll explain to you. I think big picture, I mean, different nations and peoples have different emphases and, you know, I guess are motivated by different things. And I think in Anglophonic culture, we're very motivated by it. And I'm not saying this in a hippy-dippy way. I'm saying, like, just an objective sense. We're motivated by accumulating material, um, especially American Anglos. They, they, you know, for instance, suburbia, our obsession. We're very, I think, as a people, very us Americans are very like antisocial. We enjoy our privacy. We enjoy um, gathering things into our home. And uh, if you see the, the the typical avarice of the American is, is basically our homes with junk because that's our like, you know, our, our highest claim to life is basically accumulating things. Um, and I think this is true of wider Germanic cultures of of Western Germanic, so the Dutch, the the English, and obviously the rest of the Anglophonic world. Yeah, but let's distinguish between extent, Europeans well. and Americans. Americans have no taste. Americans pile their their houses up with <laughs> with. I mean, have you ever seen like have you gone through a suburb, an American suburb, and you've seen the garage doors open? I mean, you're right, they're piled up to the rafters, <laughs> but it's a bunch of shit from China. You know, if you go to like. Holland or Germany. I mean, you have to take your shoes shoes off first of all when you walk in the door, and then everything is immaculate. And I, I well, you know why? I think there's a huge it's, difference. It's because 
It's because when em Europe emptied its European population, we were basically settled mostly by peasants and, and low-caste people. So, <laughs> yeah. and, that explains and a I lot. Know, I, know that sounds, I know that sounds awful, but that translates to our also the puritanical um, influence of our culture where we kind of disparage pride and we disparage flashiness, and that's kind of mutated into yeah. accumulating things, but of trivial, frivolous stuff. Anyway, to juxtapose that, the Latin cultures, and I don't just include the Hispanics or the Lusitanians and the Italians. Well, what so is on, a Lusitanian? They place a I, I don't know that term. I'm, I'm sure others are so, like me as well. So, yeah, so, so it's a very... Um, I guess a self-important <laughs> title that like Portuguese people give themselves, which is the okay. uh, Roman name for the original tribe oh. that had inhabited the Portuguese place. And so it was called Lusitania. Okay. Okay. And uh, it was uh, juxtaposed against the, Hispa uh, the, the Hispania, right? And basically Hispanics. And the worst thing you can call like a Lusitanian person is a Hispanic or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's really cringeworthy. Stuff. There's this really funny, petty uh, ethnic rivalry between the Spaniards and the Portuguese, which is has its roots deep in uh, Portuguese culture specifically, and it still manifests manifests itself today, which is really, really funny. But because it's, it, I mean, d the differences between each other are pretty trivial, but also there is a chasm between them that actually, you know, defines them. Um, but I guess what I would say is that the Latins in general, they place a pr special emphasis on social acclamation and acclaim and what we call glory, which is basically, I guess, glory for Englishmen and the Germanics is like achieving great things or great deeds. Whereas you see this in the Romans, glory for Romans is to be known amongst people and to be like acclaimed and loved by your family, your friends, and wider society. It's more of a pride thing, an emphasis on pride, social pride. Um, whereas, you know, the Germanics, they place a special emphasis on material wealth and material prosperity. And I hope I presented this in such a way which is value neutral, right? Because everyone has their own specific interests and stuff like that, but every nation also has its own specific instincts. And I think Nietzsche really goes into this, but, you know, he doesn't really talk about the Latins as much because he's very focused. On, well, I guess he's focused on the French, but I disavow the French. I don't even talk about the French. You know, <laughs> the French are a bunch of freaks. I don't, you know, you could, you could sue me, but, but basically. Yeah, they're you know, weird. They're that. weird people. And, I agree. Yeah. You hear that with your friend and like how he keeps his room spartan, but you notice that the emphasis of his life is definitely social because I mean it, it takes a lot of effort to to talk to people to make sure they're doing well to keep uh, correspondences with people to keep uh, relationships with people fresh and not simply you know kind of like oh I know a person last time I spoke to him was five years ago that doesn't count. And so there's that special emphasis in Brazil, which is inherited from the Portuguese and wider Latin culture that you see. And even in my own life, I, I really don't like things. I like keeping my room Spartan, but I mean, I guess that's just uh, to each his own kind of situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great sort of framing of how that fits into the culture as a whole. I mean, you know, I'm at the disadvantage of actually not knowing Brazilians from Brazil, like in Brazil, like I've, I've met them in the United States, but uh, I can only project based on that. And, and the problem with that is usually that they're 
they're probably sort of a higher rung of, of people, at least on some level, because they've had the the courage to travel and live abroad. And also they usually have some talents that they, uh, you know, need to be able to, to do it. Well, historically, you know, as an immigrant, but you know, these days you just, uh, you, you tell people you're going to vote for Democrat and they, they give you free housing, but, uh, (laughs) these types weren't, weren't like that. So I, I have kind of a, probably a bias sense for what, other Brazilians are like, but my, my research would indicate that, you know, there, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of problems there with a lot of the population and, you know, crime. And, and, and I, I would hear this from, from people I knew from Brazil. I mean, they would say, you know, we, we'd be walking down the streets and parking the car and be worried about, you know, somebody breaking in and, and, the guy would be like, dude, I'm from Brazil. Like, this is nothing, you know? So, <laughs> so that just, that just right there tells me there's, there's a lot of crime and you could probably, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it, but you could probably see more of this if you went on some, uh, some website that that's got like the, uh, the kind of upload culture that YouTube used to have, but I, I don't know if it's live leak or whatever it is, but just those kind of like dash cam videos from Russia, the equivalent of that, but for Brazil, I've seen some crazy, I don't know if it's from Brazil or from Mexico or wherever, but I've seen some crazy like motorcycle chases where, uh, people are basically just trying to like evade the cops and, you know, they'll, they'll go on like a motorcycle ride through the favelas for like 40 minutes you know, with a girl on the back and it's, it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I lived there when I was very young and one of my earliest memories was actually, um, our, so, okay. So I lived in Zona West, which is in Rio de Janeiro, the rich side, right. And Rio de Janeiro is basically split between rich and poor very, very graphically because it's very mountainous as you can probably see. And the mountains divide the old city from the new. And obviously the rich get away from, you know, the crime of the poor. But point being is that we're going back from the mall. And, you know, the greyhounds and stuff like that in America. Yeah. Well, my mom and I were taking uh, basically the equivalent of a greyhound. But the greyhounds in Brazil are like very fashionable. Like it's not it's not like uh, taking the metro. It's it's kind of like where the rich people go instead of taking the, the, you know, Metro bus, you know what I'm saying? It's very, very comfortable, very clean. And, you know, people don't take their personal cars to the mall. So that way they can just like, you know, go and easily travel. Is it, is it for a safety or security thing where they don't want the car broken into or stolen or they don't want to get attacked? Like the bus is safer or it's just kind of some luxury thing. Or con- convenience, uh, like they don't want both. to have to park. Like I don't know. I think it's elements of all, all, all these yeah. things, because they're because yeah. uh, parking. So the malls in Brazil are not like here in the U.S., where like there's this massive parking like right. parking deck. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, especially because it it does invite crime, because you can easily jack right. someone's car or whatever. Right. And so yeah, it's good convenience as well, and also safety and numbers kind of thing. Anyway, long story short, um, basically it was nighttime which is a big no-no and we're on the highway and suddenly the bus comes to a halt and like five guys, you know, masked with guns 
come all over into the uh, the bus and basically tell the bus driver to start driving. And the guy's, you know, yelling at the bus driver saying that, you know, with a revolver to his head, he said, which means like, I'm literally going to bust your coconut if you don't do what I say. Hmm. And basically everyone's supposed to empty all the things that they have, all the belongings that they have into these trash bags and stuff like that. And I was a very young kid and I was one of the few kids that were on that bus um, because we made the mistake. I think we were having dinner or something. I was too young to remember any of the specifics before this, but because this was such an exhilarating <laughs> moment in my life, I think I remember it so well right. to this day. But, you know, um, my, you know, was se- seated next to the window and my mom was seated in the aisle and basically they approached my mother and, you know, uh, basically told to give up everything. She gives up everything. And she had this ring that was like yellow gold with a black diamond on it. And, uh, they had passed over each other and, and then suddenly there's a uh, commotion in the back and there's this kind of guy with his family and his young family. And basically he stood up against the, uh, the robbers and, um, basically, I think the reason why he was like being angry at the robbers was more of a sense of self pride and machismo. You know Mm. what I mean? That sense of, you know, being dishonored as a man, like having a gun in your face, trying to be cowed into submission. And so he kind of refused that. And, uh, I don't know what, and like, I'll I'll tell you what ended up happening later, but basically they took all his stuff and then they approached my mom when this, this one guy noticed that, her ring hadn't come off her finger and had been deposited in the correct receptacle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, oh, do you want this shit? You know, you want your finger that bad? And basically he's like, oh, you want this? You know, like she was pointing at her ring. And she's like, oh, this is just fake. You know, this is not even a real real ring. But, I mean, you can have it if you want it. And, and he takes it in his hand. And he's like, nah, it's fine. You can keep it. And so she keeps her wow. like $5,000 <laughs> ring. And it's like one of the greatest poker uh, faces in my life. I remember thinking that as a kid and I obviously wasn't giving anything away. I was a, you know, little blonde kid with blue eyes. And I was just, uh, my mom was very worried that I'd give myself away as a gringo, especially when I was young, I had a very heavy accent. And, uh, anyway, long story short, part of this, you know, 30 minute bus ride, this, (laughs) not only does this, uh, robber obviously aggress everyone on the bus and dishonors and and her you know threatening my mom with a a pistol you know to have her wealth and stuff like that but he also you know gives me a morality lesson he's like uh he sits me aside he's like you see what i'm doing here and i was like i just nodded and then he says uh this is why you need to go to school you need to do well in school i'm just doing this for my family it's basically kind of a dostoevsky moment where uh you know he's uh basically kind of coping for himself excusing himself Uh by offering a free moral lesson but anyway you know, I remember that for the rest of my life. And I knew, you know, I took the opposite lesson from what he told me, which is basically, you know, it's easy to be a scumbag, which he was, Mm -hmm. and it's easy to cope and seem like you're a good guy, but you're not. And ultimately, poverty is no excuse for crime. It's no excuse for exactly what his friends did, which is after the bus drive, he had the bus driver pull over and drop them off on the side of the highway. And basically the guy that had stood up was taken outside and he was executed on the the side of the fucking highway. Holy shit. And so, and so here's the thing that like, 
you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm not a moral fag type person, beat the drum about whatever. But the truth is, is that, you know, that experience was so ingrained in me because you realize that no matter how much education you give them or how much uh, money you give them, um, there's a certain type of avarice, avaricious person, like a amoral yeah. person that won't care and will leverage morality against those who they're aggressing. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I, I guess this is a long way of saying that that's, that's Brazil in the democratic era, which is what we see now, which is crime is rampant, criminals are venerated and given license um, to roam and good people um, because of their success and because of their hard work are punished by proxy. Um, okay. But that's my personal experience. And shortly after that, my mom got off and we got a van that was a taxi. And, you know, she had very, you know, she was crying and all that stuff. But but that's kind of like uh, just to hammer the point home. That is a very real and common occurrence in Brazil. Um, you know, uh, it's very unsafe. And it's becoming increasingly more so recently. Um, so, so you're saying you, I, I you, you, you didn't go shopping after that. You went home. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm actually yes, kind of curious right. if you did, because if you did, that would indicate this is a normal occurrence. But uh, that's an incredible story, man. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I completely... Yeah. I don't know if agree is the, the right word. I... I resonate sympathize. with, I, I, I do sympathize because I've, I've run across types like this, not probably this hardcore, but uh -huh. sort of petty criminal types that uh -huh. will, you know, not pay their taxes or, or shit like that. And they always got an excuse. It's always the government. It's always somebody else's fault. And it's like, no, you're just a piece of shit. I mean, you know, and <laughs> I, I, and I, I noticed this because you've made an excuse for everything. And, you know, once or twice, you might be right. You know, maybe it was not your fault, but there, there's a pattern here. And, and I've noticed that types like this, they, they make excuses for themselves and they allow themselves to do wrong things. And, you know, it's not to say that there's not white collar crime because there is. And, and the rich, mm -hmm. you know, don't necessarily earn necessarily everything that they have because a lot of that is interest on interest. But... <laughs> You know, it, by and large, I've found that people who are successful, or maybe that's the wrong word, let's say, well, definitely the people that are successful, I, I trust more. But the people that are rich versus poor, that's not necessarily an easy delineation because there are rich people who are, are degenerate trust fund types that, you know, just don't know how to work and they've, they've never worked in their life and that you can't count on them for anything. And then there are poor people who do nothing but work and it's still barely enough to get ahead and you can't count on them. But it's, it's a type that is within probably both groups, but I'm not going to say for, to what degree, but there is a type. So not, not all poor people are noble. In other words, there are dishonorable poor people. And those are the types that I think you're, you're identifying. Uh, and I, I resonate with that cause I've, I've run across them and, and yeah, you got to be careful around them because I think one of the things that makes them even more dangerous, well, there's a lot of things actually, but two things that come to mind is they don't have a lot to lose and probably because of that, they're typically more violent. And so seriously, and, and if you've got somebody who's rich, 
who does have a lot to lose, yeah, they might be a douchebag or something. They might, they might sue you, but typically they're not going to put a hit out on you or, or just hit you with a, a, a lead pipe or something that they pulled out of a wall. Like shit like that. It's a different level of, you know, combat. You have to understand what you're dealing with. So anyway, well, that, life uh, is, yeah. life is very cheap in, in, you know, Latin America in general. I mean, it's not even cheap in the sense that because people are poor, life is cheap, cheap life is cheap in the sense that that's how the philosophy of life is. And that I think, um, in America or the Anglo world, we actually value human life as such, but there isn't a similarity or like a kind of cultural parallel in, I, I, I know this for certain in, you know, Portuguese, the Portuguese world, because it's almost seen as shameful to put too much like value on this life, if that makes sense. Like it's, it's very interesting. And obviously that has, you know, primary and secondary effects, which obviously lead to situations like I'm going to go into now, uh, which with the history and the nature of which and how, you know, Brazilian culture was structured and how it was formed and stuff. And, and it's not simply the structure or like, uh, you know, social structures, like, you know, kind of constructivists like to make out, but it's also a difference in, I guess, um, you know, the, the stock of person and uh, what the emphasis is because in the United States, you know, the colonies, when we colonized and conquered the United States, it was more about colonization. It was, it was an emphasis of establishing a new homeland for those, you know, individuals that were exiled from Great Britain or had been sent here. They, they, you know, came here to intended to um, set down roots. But mm -hmm. when Brazil was colonized in 1500s, you know, 1500 all the way, you know, basically through the captaincy area, it was a bunch of adventurers who brought no women um, who had an intent of, of using the local populace of Indians um, to basically enrich them with gold and sugar yeah. and uh, everything else. It, it really was a, a conquistador out. mindset. It was like, we're going to go and take what we don't have. Whereas I think yes. in the sort of American colony or North American colonies, it was more like, we're going to take what we have and, and build upon it. And we're not going to, yes. we'd rather not deal with the people who are there, but unfortunately we have to, but it, that's sort of how I think, <laughs> but it's a different mindset where, and, and you see this like sort of on Twitter, sometimes people are like, Oh, you know, we return to who you are. And it's like, I don't know if I'm like a conquistador. <laughs> like I, I'm more of a, <laughs> leave me the hell alone. I'm going to build my own thing and you go do your, your favela and you keep, you know, stealing from each other and go nowhere. And, I'll work with my people who know how to build things and we'll see where we get. The problem is, you know, you've got women who have empathy and then they start letting in those types that screw things up. But that, that's my long and short of it. But anyway, go ahead. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a know, difference. It's definite difference. That, so I guess the, the main juxtaposition is that like the English, especially the ones that came to America are very, they're, they're part of the bourgeois, which is the merchant class, which is, you know, just right. above the labor class. And they have that same impulse that you have. And the people, the, the aristocracy that came to Brazil, they all came from the warrior class. Mm -hmm. You know, there were dukes and uh, adventurers and professional military elites and so on. And so that has rippling effects going downward because yeah. much in the same way that Africa was colonized and basically, you know, there was a very small uh, elite 
um, warrior elite that was extractive population kind of situation. Same thing happened in Brazil. And, um, and part of what you're saying with the racial dynamic in Brazil is actually very, very different um, from the United States because in the United States we had an emphasis on the unity of a nation and because and to create and expand ourselves in the United States, um, there was a very strong taboo against mixing. However, in like the Lusitanian and the Hispanic world, uh, when they con conquered specific territories, they actually made it a point of emphasis to breed a middle caste of people hmm. that would basically serve as managers and stuff, and they're called Creoles. And basically, uh, that's where you get like this kind of sliding dynamic of people and obviously i'm not putting a value on it i'm just telling you historically mm -hmm. that is exactly the the kind of um dynamic that caused that during the captaincy era which is what it's called it wasn't called colonization it was called the captaincies which should actually kind of underline for you the audience uh, the difference in emphasis you know one is incredibly martial top down extractive you know you will do this you will labor for me or i will kill you or like maim you etc as opposed to the uh the colonization of of uh, america which sought to of course bring over more people such as themselves and have a certain degree of positive rapport with each other and law and so on and so forth so it's a difference in emphasis you know what i mean yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not black and white. Obviously, there was slavery in the United States, but it, it, it was a much smaller degree, frankly. And the Brazilian importation of slaves, it, it was the largest uh, in the world historically. They brought and, over 5 million from Africa, and I don't know, I, th I think it was probably under a million in the United States, and they probably grew that, you know, just from, from breeding frankly, but I, I don't, I don't, I, I do know that it was to a lesser extent, uh, to what much lesser and less degree and scale. It's hard to define, but it, it, I think it was less. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing I see in the United States and I see the culture in Brazil. So that dynamic is interesting because the history of slavery in Brazil is a lot more rapacious and brutal mm -hmm. than anything that happened in the U S because so, for instance, okay, the main sugar crop, I mean, excuse me, the main cash crop in Brazil was sugar mm -hmm. and then coffee, obviously, and then finally beef cultivation. However, the latter two didn't happen until roughly the 1800s. So the entirety of the existence of the Brazils, as they called it archaically, um, was extremely extractive, labor-intensive sugarcane harvesting. Now... For those of you that don't know, sugarcane is it's like a bamboo plant. It's mm -hmm. very strong, it's pliable, and uh, you can build things out of it. I mean, it's very like difficult to have. The climate is very harsh. I myself got dengue once and fucking almost died. Wow. You know, I, yeah, I lost like 30 pounds. is absurd. And basically, you know, this was in the time before inoculation, or at least effective inoculation. This was the time before, you know all kinds of AC and fans and all this crap that we have nowadays that we take for granted. Um, and so, you know, and, and not to mention, of course, uh, the slave owners, the slave society in Brazil was a lot more brutal as well. Like in, in America, we had the 
this weird obsession with thinking that the slaves had souls and that we have to take care of them, all this stuff. Like, the Portuguese did not give a fuck. Like, they don't care if they were Christians. In fact, it was probably better that the um, slaves maintained their paganism, which is what manifested in and the voodoo that you see. And they have all kinds of cults that are, like, very African paganism kind of uh, continued on. Um, but many is there, of them is there voodoo in Brazil? Because I, I know... Oh, uh, yes. A couple of Haitians, oh, yes. and that's pretty much their claim to fame, from what I understand, is the voodoo stuff. But but it's it's also it's it sounds like it's more of a West African slave kind of byproduct, and it it also emerged from that, or did it come from Haiti down to Brazil, or it just it, it came from Africa? Primarily? It came from Africa. So okay. it's actually it's there's this interesting um, recent scholarship done. Uh, which actually examined the polytheistic uh, beliefs of the, you know, uh, Domi, uh, Dome, I forgot how you pronounce it, but the specific tribe in Africa um, and how it basically metamorphosized into voodoo. And it's called something else in Brazil. I forget the name, but it's effectively the same thing, which is uh, the belief in spirits and sprites, dark magic, shape-shifting skinwalkers. And there's like, for instance, Sassi uh, Pirede, which is basically this... Um, um, it's a forest sprite with that's a one-legged forest sprite, dark kind of energy imp kind of situation. Hmm. Um, and uh, he c- comes to you. I forgot the exact ramifications, but all of this is downstream from that voodoo original stuff. And even to this day, it is very common for everyone in society in Brazil to go to these voodoo practitioners up in, you know, the favelas and have their fortunes told and, you know, have like uh, voodoo uh, against their, their nemeses. And, and it's kind of funny, but it, it is very much a different thing because in America, and you notice that uh, in America, the only place that practices voodoo is in the French quarter in like new Orleans and like Louisiana. Right. But, where they were dominated by the British, that was completely taken away, and it is extremely uncommon. In fact, I think the African-American population in America is extremely Christian. Um, and you should see how much of Historically, a, a, yeah. And historic. some, of them, some of them are into Islam now, but yeah. Right, yeah. right. But, but I think you, uh, you get what I'm trying to put down is basically um, the nature of slavery was a lot harsher, a lot more brutal, a lot more apathetic – and uh-huh. um, and also the most interesting thing is that when Brazil, um, you know, basically banned slavery in the year 1900, and it, it was extremely peaceful. It's very interesting that in the United States, I had uh, 1888, but that's it's right, close Sorry, enough, maybe. Okay, Sorry, 1888. You're correct. And um, it was extremely peaceful. I mean, it just came from the decree from the the emperor, and it just went away. You know what I mean? And there was like obviously there's low level violence. All yeah, the but time what do you and, do with the slaves? I mean, that, that's the unanswered question that nobody really wants to figure out. It's because it's a hard problem. What happened? Well, so in America, what happened was basically America itself became very industrialized. However, Brazil continued to be this agricultural centric culture and economy and so a lot of these ex-slaves just continued on sharecropping or continued on uh, cultivating sugar um, coffee 
and uh, bovine material. And so they just started working for wages or something. But but where did they live? Yes. I mean, did they have did they have to basically make these contracts with the landowners to basically live where they used to live and then just get get a wage essentially? Uh, is that is that the uh, difference? Uh, so I think it was specifically sharecropping, and I think that they were allowed to squat. But a lot of so for so, instance, okay. the modern favelas are that's where their origin comes from. Is yeah. basically after the 18, late 1800s, early turn of the century, there are a whole bunch of people that became effectively landless um, without employment, and they gravitated towards the city for any kind of wage-earning jobs that they might be. Right. And suddenly, and you know, as we know them, favelas started to spring up as shanty towns and mm-hmm. so on. And that's where their origin comes from originally. Which is very interesting because there's favelas everywhere in in Brazil. Like no matter where you go, what region you go, and um, well, I just, assume it's just around the cities. But is that also? Yes. I, I don't really know that many cities other than Sao Paulo and uh, <laughs> Rio and Brasilia. But I know there's a couple more like Curitiba, I guess. But it's um, like, do they have like medium sized like? Uh, I'm trying to think of an example like. Duluth or something like I, I don't know if there's a bunch of those around and then do they have favelas or is it really just the big 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 cities because the big I cities they're quite large I mean Sao Paulo has like over 20 million people that's a lot so I can see how a favela system would sort of evolve there but for like 20,000 people town I, I assume that's yeah, out more in the, the sort of uh, farm areas. Like, the, I, I, w- I wouldn't imagine as many favelas. So is that so is that correct? Family, or, yeah. yeah, my family like is a, comes from a large landowning family in the countryside. So, you know, I spend a lot of time in the countryside myself, and you know, the homes might be humble in the countryside, but there's no shanty towns per se. Right. Like, of course. An American going to to Brazil, you'd think everything is a shanty, but like for Brazilians for that like standard of living, yeah, I think it really does gravitate around mega cities right. and large towns. You know what I mean? Where there is definitely kind of a uh, gradient of um, you know stratification of culture and, and class. But I don't think that's the case in the countryside because I think they just become peasantry and the peasants just have their own house and. You know, obviously it, it may be humble, but yeah. it's not quite a favela, which is very yeah. different. Land you know is cheap. Mean? Land is cheaper in rural areas, probably no matter yes. where you are. So that would or make free. sense. Uh, yeah, more, I guess in the case a, of a developing country where they really need to get that land cultivated, I guess do they still give away land grants in Brazil? I mean, I, I know that there were a lot of yep. back in the '90s. I remember just you know Greenpeace was going crazy because. The, the, the rainforest was getting cut down and burned and stuff. slash and burn was the thing they'd talk about all the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you actually look into it more, it's basically really poor people trying to build a farm and I'm not picking a side here. I think there's pros and cons, but the reality is, you know, the, these people are trying to make a living and I don't know if that land is granted to them if they develop it or are they buying it? Do you know that specifics? I'm curious how Brazil's structured for kind of agriculture. Cause I know agriculture is a huge industry there, yes. but you know, in the United States, I mean, all the land is pretty much uh, developed. It's, mm. you know, with the exception of maybe some of the stuff that the federal government owns in the West, but uh, the majority of the Midwest is, is parceled out 
on these historical land grants. And those were given to people if they lived there for five years and farmed it. So, so I don't know if that system was developed in Brazil. So yes and no. So recently the government has been giving a lot of land to the Native Americans and that population is actually far larger than we have in the United States. Actually, it's very, very prominent. Um, and especially in Mato Grosso do Sul so and Amazonia. Like 5% and of the total population? What are we talking about? Like roughly? I think it's something like 15%. And they're like usually clustered in the okay. inland of Brazil, and basically it came as an initiative to you know give in back the Amazon land or so. Let, let's everywhere. do a, a quick geography overview for me and for everybody else. Um, obviously, the big cities are on the coast, right? So on the Atlantic eastern side, and then as you move inland, they have something called the Cerrado, which is the savanna, which is more like kind of semi rainy brush land. It's not exactly like what you'd see in the Midwest, the United States, but it has a few more trees. Uh, but it's, and it's also not as flat, but that's pretty much where their farming is mostly taking place. And then you have the jungle, which is sort of the Northwest, right? The Amazon. Is that roughly so far, so far correct? That is very correct. Yes. And okay. the coastline is not like here in the United States where it's kind of like a plateau and then you have some very small mountains. The mountain range is concentrated on the East Coast and it's very sharp, very sharp mountains, yeah. not very arable land. But once you get over them, that's where the fertile plains begin. And the, the deeper you go into the continent, the more swampy, the more kind of jungle-like the, the circumstances become. Um, and the geography becomes a lot more unforgiving. And the Amazons, of course, are probably the best example of that. Um, but that kind of jungle atmosphere pervades throughout Brazil until you get roughly to Sao Paulo and Santa Catarina and further south, which becomes a plain. So it is very kind of um, a dynamic, uh, you know, I guess, country. It's geographically dynamic. It's in climate. It's very dynamic as well. Um, and I think uh, people kind of make the mistake of equating Brazil to its Hispanic cousins, which are countries that kind of uh, they kind of surround Brazil, you know, with the exception of Guyana and French Guyana and whatever. But basically, they have a very different climate for themselves, you know, which are very mountain oriented and uh, different. And the interior of that South American continent is very much dominated by like a swampland, uh, sawgrass type situation. Think Florida on steroids kind of situation. Right. And then plus jungle, you know, parasites and all this kind of stuff, crazy stuff. And, and so I would imagine the majority of the quote unquote natives are up in that jungle or am yes. I cr in, Okay. Yeah. Yes. And so the, if the government gives them land, quote unquote, whatever, I guess, but it's, um, it, it's probably less desirable than the rest of it is what I'm guessing. You know, the interesting thing with Brazil is that all the land is roughly desirable. Um, the only challenge to cultivating really? land. I'll take, I'll take a, a chateau in Sao Paulo over the Amazon <laughs> personally, but go ahead. <laughs> well, the reason why I say that is because the land is arable, you know, it's very fertile and yeah. stuff. The, the, the challenge, the challenge though, is getting your hands on, 
uh, pesticides because in America uh -huh. we use pesticides and all that kind of stuff. But like you need pesticides on steroids to yeah. be able to cultivate anything of use yeah, or anything edible in Brazil because the insects there are crazy. I swear to God, yeah. cockroaches are big as helicopters. Those motherfuckers fly <laughs> and sounds like life is going to end. You know yeah. what I mean? You're but, right. There's a, there's a big industry because I follow all this kind of industry and financial, financial stuff. Uh, there's a big market for uh, agricultural products whether it's fertilizers or chemicals like you're talking about in brazil it's it's huge it's a huge agricultural market and i hadn't really factored in the fact that that would be amplified because of the climate but that makes sense because yeah when you're in a hot place that gets a lot of precipitation that's just that's just a a, a big brewing pot stew for life and if you try to do one thing there's a whole lot of other life that's going to try to eat it basically so yeah you have to control that that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah and I, I think uh the interesting thing to me is that you can imagine how harsh the climate is now just imagine being a european conquistador or captain with your men going through a strange land in an yeah. unforgiving place no thanks yeah, you take a piss in the river, and guess what? You got a leech in your, your in your penis. Like literally, this has happened where men. Take I've heard about that. In the river. I've heard. They about swim that. up your urethra, and then sometimes they latch on the inside of your urethra and your phallus, and basically you can't pee because they're they're blocking the vas deferens or whatever the fuck it's called. Oh you know what I mean? Oh my god. And what do you do? Uh, do you? Uh, this is like turning into a Joe Rogan then, podcast, but I I, I want to know this. So, do you, do you back then put a do, stick in there? Like, how do you? Anything I mean, back back then they took a hot poker stick, but if oh. it were it was too advanced, they would just amputate it, my oh, friend. Oh god. Yeah, I mean you got to pee, and your you can your body can only take so long. I think it's like two days before you can actually. What a nightmare. Um, yeah, you like that's the longest you can go without peeing. I mean, if you're you know drinking normally, the amount of. Why would urine. anyone want to go and do that? That sounds horrible. I mean, yeah, sure. You're 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 a nobody in Portugal or wherever the heck you grew up, like Lisbon or something. I don't really know Portugal, but mm -hmm. and your 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 dad is a failed uh, cork farmer or something. That's like one of the industries I know that they have. And you're so desperate, you get on one of these ships for three months and you sail off to Brazil, and they probably sold it to you, like, oh, you can be a king, you know, in your own land and. Probably a lot of misinformation, frankly. But if I knew that, I'd stay in Portugal. No, thank you. I, I don't. I don't care how bad it is. That sounds <laughs> terrible. You know, it's 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 really funny. I mean, you read the Luisiads, which is a time like it's basically a grand epic of the Portuguese exploration, conquer, conquest of of the New World and also Africa and India, and um, it, I think. I know that you might feel as though that would be not interesting to, to a man, but I think there is certainly an intrepidity of spirit and willfulness yeah, that you see. That's, in, that's fine, but if they if they couple it with you lose, losing your crown jewels, I don't, I don't think too many people, I don't think too many men, frankly, would want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> Dude, I, I can't. It's, it's, I mean, literally, it's not a very good recipe for a legacy. I mean, think about it, you know, <laughs> if you want to build your empire, that's not the, not the recipe of losing, losing your, uh, your, your phallus there. Yeah. Yeah. It would be very, not good. Not good to go. Anyway, but, Joe Rogan segment but, uh, concluded. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, uh, Brazil's, I guess 
we wanted to talk about this this topic of Brazil because we wanted to inform you who's listening about the background of this country, but also the implications it has with yeah. the politics of today. Well, we talked about Argentina last time, and it just got me thinking because I, I knew you from before, and you'd mentioned Brazil, and I'm like that'd be interesting. And it, it's um, it's obviously an important country, and it's got. Uh, well, it's the first letter in BRICS for whatever the hell that's worth, but you, you know about the BRICS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the new future, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, apparently, you know, it's going to it's gonna definitely upend yeah. NATO somehow. Yeah, um, I'm somewhat but anyway, skeptical, but, you know, good I for guess, them. I guess a cursory political history of Brazil is this. It's basically, it was founded as a captaincy, so extractive colony like is that what that means sorry sorry to interrupt and for anybody who gets annoyed by that i'm i'm not trying to but i'm i am trying to clarify (laughs) so captaincy can you can you define that i've never heard that before so it it was just basically denoting a military governor right like as opposed to you know in america we had like el capitan the captain the captaincy is that what you're saying okay yeah yeah, it's basically a commander, like Got commander, it. a commandery, or, or you know, it's a it, dominion. And you said that was from the the 1500s up to what the 1900s, or so, it, yeah. So uh, just really quickly, so that ended in the time of the Napoleonic Wars, where yeah. basically Napoleon invaded into the Iberian Peninsula. He placed his Spain. cousin Spain, in other words, for most people. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly, Spain, and then. He finally invaded into Portugal. That threat to the Portuguese people caused the royal family and the entire court of Portugal to emigrate to their new uh, capital in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And very interesting fact, but it was actually the British who were honoring a longtime alliance from the 1200s or the 1100s, um, basically helped escort and evacuate you know, the court, the the monarchs, the, you know, all the the debutantes, all their things, all the museum pieces, everything, and set it up as a capital in Rio de Janeiro. That makes sense, because the British were arch enemies with Napoleon, so they probably wanted to try to support any check against that in the future by investing eff- effectively in a return of the Portuguese to their native land to try to get rid of the Napoleonic influence I'm imagining. And of course, I mean, there's interest there, but that was, they, uh, you know, the Portuguese have had an alliance with the British monarchy since literally, I think it was 1200 AD. Like it is a very old and it still lasts till today. The alliance is still a very um, strong affinity. I mean, the Portuguese have this crazy affinity for the uh, British and for whatever reason, the Brazilians have this very strong affinity to Americans. Say what you want about that. But basically, huh. in I think it was 1800, um, the Empire of Brazil was incepted, and the first emperor of Brazil, Dom Pedro the I, uh, came to power, and the terminus of the Napoleonic Wars ended. The royal family re-emigrated to Portugal. However, um, the Empire of Brazil permanesced, and officially severed ties with the Portuguese homeland uh, with the second emperor of Brazil, Dom Pedro II. And that is the empire of Brazil. Once it was around, I think, 1895 or so, where the empire 
gave way to a republic. And this republic was called the Repubblica de Café com Leite, which means the Republic of Coffee and Milk. Because, oh my God! <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, te- technically, it was called the, the United States of Brazil at the time. However, it was the oligarchs who were in charge. So it was a strong oligarchical families um, who were, in, you know, charge of massive tracts of land and coffee distribution. And the main currency had translated from sugar to coffee. And it is part of one of the reasons why the contributing factors for the Great Depression. Um, and a, a number of different uh, economic cycles in the United States, for instance, in the 1850s, had to do with the fluctuating production and and uh, cost crashes of coffee from Brazil, because Brazil was one of the I think it was the largest producer of coffee during the 1800s and 1900s. Yeah, it it, it definitely being a second close. Definitely, you know? definitely was. Uh, what, what was the second one? Sorry. Argentina. Argentina. Okay. Yeah. But Brazil is number one, numero uno. I don't know Portuguese, <laughs> but Spanish. Uh, in, uh, in coffee for last hundred plus years, uh, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, 19th century is pretty much Brazil, 100%. Uh, and then yes. I, I guess, I don't know what type of uh, just weird tangent, but I don't know what type of, I don't even drink coffee, ironically, but I, I was always curious about commodities. And so I learned that there's two main types of beans. There's Arabica, and I want to say indica, but that's I think marijuana. So I don't remember the other mar- type. Marijuana. But yeah, there's there's a couple of types, and then I know the the Vietnamese grow a lot of coffee now. Uh, historically, I don't know if they did, but uh, and the, I think that's sort of part of Asia probably grows the rest of it. But yeah, mm-hmm. interesting stuff. But I, I do want to say for like, why I was sort of laughing at this like the 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 empire of coffee and sugar or whatever or milk. I just, I, I know that like people are maybe not very farsighted and I'm not necessarily saying I'm an exception to that because I don't, I can't predict the future. But if you literally put on your flag, like a plant, I, I just don't think that's a smart long-term strategy because one, like, yeah, technology advances, but, but two, um, to make your primary economy and export built around one cash crop, I think it's just a recipe for disaster. And I think you're alluding to that because you're at the whims of the global commodity markets. You can't really control the price. You don't, a definition of a commodity is a product that has absolutely no differentiation other than its price. So effectively you're, you're, you can't add any value to this thing. It's really just whatever comes out of the ground. And yeah, if you have a cost advantage, maybe you could sort of maintain some sort of edge but ultimately, if it's a free market, edges go away pretty quickly because if there's somebody who's making a surplus profit, that usually means somebody can come in, use the same technology, and undercut them and get the market. And so the prices and the margins basically drop almost to zero. And so commodities are bad news if, if, you're, if you're doing it at a company scale. But at a country scale, I, I just think it's, it's suicide. And if you look at the, the charts on these commodities, I mean – they go up 200% one year, then they crash 90% the next year. I mean, how do you, how do you feed your family with that? It's crazy. And this is before crop insurance, futures derivatives. I mean, this stuff didn't exist. So I just think it's, yeah, if you're a wealthy landowner, whatever, you could sort of take it, but your, your sharecroppers are probably going to be really hungry 
for a long time. And to build your, your country out of that, I, I guess there was nothing else. What else are you going to do back then? But it just seems very dangerous. I think it's, it's a smarter strategy to, yeah, have some agriculture, but also have some industry, have some services, have a mixed economy, because then you're going to have a more smooth, you know, overall. So that was one of the challenges. So, so here you have to transport yourself back to this time, right? This was before the great depression. This was before, you know, Keynes and, and the understanding of, of Mm -hmm. how production affects even demand and, all this kind of stuff and how uh, the price of a good, I mean, f- fuck's sake, like the, the Spanish monarchy inflated the price, or excuse me, deflated the price of gold simply by how much they extracted and, and silver as well, right. uh, because they didn't understand how, you know, inflation of a good causes the relative price of that. Well, that, 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 that's just, that's just a bunch of inbreeding monarchs that it, Never, never actually had to work for a living. I, I don't think it's actually very hard to understand why that happened. And you mentioned Keynes. Right. I mean, prior to Keynes, it was called, you know, well, from after Keynes, they called what was before him classical economics. But the basic principles of that was supply and demand. And I think the, the understanding was there from at least the late 1700s where, you're in, you know, Ricardo and people like that, uh, Adam Smith, people like that who recognized that, if you have an overproduction, typically there's going to be a drop in prices. So, and that, that's exactly what happened with the gold. I mean, it's just you know, monarchs. I mean, I, I, you know, so, yeah, I, I, have, I have some affinity for the concept of a government, maybe with sort of a long-term perspective of a monarch, but I p- don't particularly put a lot of stock in the, the sort of insights of monarchs, to be mm-hmm. frank with you, when, especially when it comes to things like economics. Well, I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you actually some reasons, underpinning reasons why there was a crisis. And it's actually the, the founding crisis, which actually upended this this oligarchy, right? And uh, basically, because Brazil had become such a strong agricultural-based centric country and with no diversification, um, the reason why it was that way was because at the time, American, British, French, and I believe Russian goods like uh manufactured goods to the new world um was flooding the market so much that there was no interest um there was no immediate economic interest to create a factory or a a strong manufacturing base in brazil yeah that was the challenge and say what you want about monarchs but a wise monarch is able to look past economic cycles past fiscal cycles or the immediate myopic term and see that diverse diversification is necessary which is we're seeing with saudi arabia who's trying to diversify while they're still ahead yeah. their petro you know petroleum or yeah. russia which is making every effort straining itself to be anything but a fucking natural gas or you know, they, they, you're com- right you can company. have an enlightened leader i'm not saying that's not possible with a monarchy uh, unfortunately though there, there's exce- there's a lot of exceptions to that and that that's the problem right but and sure democracy's got a bunch of idiots running things too but i'm not saying one is necessarily better but mm. russia no, no, right. t- take russia for example right and we can apply it to brazil i think the russia has talked to and putin has said like like publicly we have an over-reliance on the natural resource sector and he's tried to actually get away from that, and it didn't work, frankly, until the sanctions, because what that did was it was sort of uh, an external tariff, effectively, on imported goods. 
and it it forced or it, it created opportunities in other words for domestic production because they russian citizens couldn't buy anything else like your your choice was not amazon prime it was nothing or whatever the heck <laughs> some russian autovaz crappy factory churns out and so yeah they're going to go with the russian option because it's better than nothing but right that that's really been the result of a wartime economy not necessarily any clever tricks that the monarch was able to figure out. Because at the end of the day, if you're not competitive in something, ordinary citizens are typically going to go with the price, a cheaper price. So if your domestic production is not able able to produce at a market rate and they're above market, they're not going to have any sales. So it's not something that you can solve unless you literally put a tariff wall around everything. And then, yeah, you can have a period where there's domestic industry, but the Soviets did that and they did it for 70 years. And then when those walls were taken down, it turned out that all that junk that they were making was junk and nobody wanted it because it was never under any pressure from a competitive marketplace Mm -hmm. with the exception of maybe weapons where it kind of was competitive because they were literally fighting. Like what other exceptions are there? I mean, domestic industry in Russia was steel. It was, tanks and stuff like that but they they didn't have any any real exports of that stuff it was really the natural natural resources and and brazil kind of had that same situation and then they i know there was a period where they tried to industrialize but mm, i don't know just there's not well remember emperor air is the the child of that that that, that's the terrorists. only example I can think of. And it's it's a cool company. I actually am a fan, yeah. uh, believe it or not. I, there's a couple of airplanes they make that are really interesting. But um, if you want to talk about that, I'd, I'd love to hear more. But don't let me derail yeah, you. But I, I thought that was an interesting point where we could discuss some of these concepts. It's okay, Adam. I'm too autistic to be derailed. I'm still on the same line. Anyway, Some, some listeners don't, don't like it when I quote-unquote derail. It's just how my brain works. Sorry, guys. No, no, no. It's a free no, show. What so- are you going to do? <laughs> no, don't be sorry because I, I think more, the most important part about the myth, which is why I love the myth, I've been following you forever, even before you knew I existed, um, is the fact that you guys go on tangents, is the fact that you expand, is the fact that yeah. basically you do the equivalent of open all tabs on the Wikipedia page, which is great. Um, and uh, I think it's actually intellectually stimulating. Yeah, until, until, but, your, until your computer uh, fan starts spinning and then crashes because <laughs> the memory ran out. But yeah, I've reached that but point. But to bring it full circle back to the overview of how the Brazilian political landscape was. That oligarchy suffered a serious economic crash in the price of coffee, caused massive poverty, caused you know massive turmoil, right. internal turmoil in Brazil, which caused in itself its own first communist insurrection in the new world. And a lot of people don't know, but a, lar- a large portion of revolutionary thinking um, set its roots, deep roots, in Brazil. So a lot of people know Garibaldi from Italy. Right. He spent a lot of his time in exile in Brazil. Um, he also a lot of anarchists from Spain and from that, southern. That Brazil. was like late nineteenth, early twentieth century, or what? What period Correct. was that? Okay. So late, so late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Right. And then the anarchists. A lot of people don't know this, but anarchism or anarchy is very strong, especially in the Iberian cultures. Mm. Um, and they have their very strong and uh, pronounced violent 
uh, history in Brazil as well. well why is that? Do you have a, an explanation for why it's so popular? And and how do you actually you. how do you actually know that? I mean, is it like they they took a survey and it's like ten out of ten out of a hundred Portuguese said anarchy is the best <laughs> way to go? And I mean, how do you actually make that claim first of all? And then like, why do you think that is true? If it is true, so so um, because so I don't have any graphs, but I do know <laughs> that there are a number of um, hinterland communities um, that were basically around that mountain chain in Sao Paulo and then a little bit north. Um, but the government had to crack down violently against these communities. Um, and basically, uh, you know, they, they, they basically had to be forcibly put down, which is different from the United States. Like, of course, we had anarchists in that time. I mean, Walden is the best version of this, but they were always very bourgeois, you know. And I think that stems from the fact that Latin cultures are very stratified. And that's not the case in English ones, where even in the time of the English monarchy, um, the bourgeois, like, for instance, English culture is very bourgeois. You know, it's very it's very um, familiar. Um, there's a lack of like uh, at a certain period of time. I mean, obviously, they have a very sort of historical nobility that is pretty well it's pretty famous, right? But I think maybe what you're describing is what evolved during the Industrial Revolution slash Victorian era, where there was that sort of uh, new wealth, effectively, that grew out of the sort of new industries that were popping up that maybe created what you're describing. I don't know, like the Dickensian sort of bourgeois, but uh, you know, kind well, of like Ebenezer Scrooge type. But I don't know... Like well, before that, really, was very was deeply there. rooted in uh, English yeah. culture. I mean, take for instance, obviously, the Magna Carta and the revolts of the barons, or Cromwell is probably the best example. Okay, of, Cromwell, yeah. you know, overcoming the monarchy and, and placing a parliament, which is unprecedented. Well, it was precedent, of course, in in, in uh, early modern Europe. However, the emphasis and the kind of uh, it's it's very English culture is not a like. Um, noble culture it's it's very middle class bourgeois culture with the emphasis on like individual rights and so on and so forth even before the enlightenment even before Locke, hmm. you know what i mean and uh i, I don't want to go into it of course i could go into a two-hour spiel about how that's true and not true in other cultures especially in no France I, or, I, I see what you're uh, saying it, it's in, it's an interesting first example to give as a counterpoint to what you're i think making a point about the sort of latin stratification to pick england as the sort of opposite it it caught me off guard but i can sort of see what you're talking about i think more of uh, america like that because it was a really what kind of a, the reset button was hit and like okay you guys are on your own now as an easier example of that but i guess it kind of came somewhat from some of the ideas from england so anyway just, just a thought. Yeah. So, um, in in Latin cultures, however, there's a very strong agricultural cavalier culture, which mm. which basically places a lot of emphasis on the dawn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, or the the grand the grandee of some kind of you know the the state and people like thousands of people worked for the state. So, for instance, my Caval ancestor cavalier is a French word, cavalier probably or something like that, but. Yeah. And okay. the idea is that it was basically a true aristocracy who lived agriculturally, who had slaves and servants, okay. and their emphasis was not on manual labor because the the aristocratic 
impulse is that all labor is shameful and it kind of is like, <laughs> yeah. you, know, it, you know, like, you know, it's, it's the, it's the curse of Cain, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you know what I mean? Um, and so there, that translated very strongly into Brazilian culture where basically that's stratification. Um, and the, the intense agriculture nature of Brazil that permanences even till today um, makes itself felt in the culture, which is machismo, that strong martial self-understanding mm-hmm. that man is is a is the center of authority, strength, um, of protected protection for his family and his mm-hmm. clan. Um, and where that wasn't the same in, in um, you know, the Britannic world at large, where, of course, you might take care of your nuclear family but not your extended one you might even like whack your extended family be estranged from them but the strong familial bonds in latin cultures makes itself felt in that kind of expression because you're meant to take care of everyone even your cousins and so on and um you know obviously a great man such as my great-grandfather who basically you know we, the, my family owns a large plantation of like a thousand plus hectares um, and, uh, f- you know, with a land deed from 1565. And ultimately, you know, it, 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 a lot of law, a lot of interpersonal conflicts, a lot of the litigious aspects of that Lusitanian culture, all that is put before that one man with power to actually execute that law. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't law by committee. It was law by military figure, military justice, basically. And I think that's Uh. one of the greatest juxtapositions because in America, we do things by committee. We do things by um, meeting with our peers. We do things with uh, common law, for instance, as opposed to Roman law, which is proscriptive as opposed to based on precedent. That explains Um, a lot because like my reading of Brazilian government governance is is essentially a long series of overthrowing one group after another and it's very violent and uh you end up with these kind of quasi dictatorships and it's it's kind of a yeah it's just a bunch who's got a bigger dick basically contest and as opposed to okay we're going to have a conversation and we're going to work out what is equitable and fair for as many people as possible kind of thing it's a it's a different you could say it's more feminine but um, I think there's drawbacks to both, frankly. I don't think it's necessarily good or bad, but but mm-hmm. please continue. So, you know, like I was saying before, there's this, I guess you're asking me, what evidence do I have to support that claim of a strong anarchic, communistic culture? Well, oh, yeah, we're still on that. Okay. So first of all, of course, you know, there are rebellions and uh, hinterland wars and stuff like that. And I don't want to get into it because it happened. It was... You know, I don't like giving honor to to anarchists or like these kind of lowly people. They're just scum. I don't really care. Um, however, one of the most fateful events of world history actually came from the communist insurrection um, by, I think it's uh, Prestis. His name is Prestis. And, and basically, he galvanized all these paupers, these unemployed people, all the, the lower class people of Brazil. And in the 1930s, was basically doing a long march throughout Brazil, physically, um, and to overtake the Brazilian oligarchical government run by these oligarchs, right? 
And this is where Getulio Vargas comes in with a military government to crush the communists, to balance out the interests of the oligarchs, and to raise up the common interests of the nation by industrialization and so on and so forth, right? However, it's very interesting to note that Mao Zedong actually studied Getulio Pestis, I think it's not Getulio, but it's Pestis and his column, his marching column for when Mao Zedong did his own kind of kind of long march in the hinterland to gain support and ultimately take over all of modern day China. So or rather, I, I can't pronounce that guy, but the Portuguese sounding name, um, he was a communist <laughs> or he was just he an was. anarchist. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, it's, it's called the Coluna Prestes and I will send you like information. So our, our listenership can actually do some, some thinking about this, but it was between 1925 and 1927 and his name is Miguel Costa Prestes. And hmm. so, yeah, it's it's actually very interesting because, I mean, he had a very sizable, you know, number of followers for a very agrarian society. I mean, like he had 1,500 men-at-arms. And I know that sounds not like much, but you need the passive support of, you know, the, the local populace and, and so on and so forth to be, make sure you have the food and sustenance and a- ammunition and so on. And he was very popular. And this is part of one of the impulses that led Getulio Vargas, the first dictator of Brazil, to come to power. And I mean, you know, there is this this thing where it's like, uh, you know, in Nietzsche, where there's the the slave master dynamic where, you know, the emphasis on one by Hegelian dialectic causes the opposite to, you know, be incurred to happen. Well, I think that's what happens in Latin cultures. And you see this in the Spanish Civil War as well, where there is a strong anarchist or communist impulse in the lower case because society is so stratified and so like uh, militarily organized that basically it causes this massive underclass to manifest which it doesn't happen in Anglo-Saxon cultures because really um, there's such a large middle class in Anglo-Saxon cultures. You know, even your e- even claim li- is that e- the military culture creates an underclass. I'm trying to understand. Yes. So well, it, wouldn't it wouldn't it maybe be because there was just a bunch of slaves there? That's exactly what I'm saying. Is it's an extractive culture, right? It's basically. Oh, I don't necessarily a, think of that as the military, though, because the military's job is to fight other countries. This is more of just a socioeconomic structure. That that's how I frame it, at least. But I, I right. kind of get what you're saying. All right. And and remember master-slave that like, relationship. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, remember that all masters and aristocracies, and I mean, from the foundation of the first states, they were all founded by warrior bands that formed the aristocratic clique and from which all social order is descended from, is downstream from. And of course, a lot of people, especially Adam Smith and a number of contemporary post-Lockean philosophers would say otherwise, where men came into basically consociational uh, union uh, for their mutual benefit um, I think it really is the opposite. I think it was really one clique who worked as a team to dominate and obviously exploit and appropriate uh, their lessers. And you see this in the Brazilian context or everywhere is your claim universally, universally. Mm. And I think to I think some that's degree, but I think it, it depends on where you are. Go ahead. Yep, yeah, and I think that like uh, basically. 
you know, and remember the, the, the military is there because it's, it's not just to defend against other polities, but from within to maintain the force of structure because all law is predicated okay. on violence and coercion. I suppose and, that is a, again, there's degrees of this, right? But in the American mentality, the military is not supposed to do that. Don't they have like posse comitatus or something where it's not like allowed to like have military running around like policemen? That's a principle, but it doesn't necessarily exist in other countries. In Latin America, I've seen enough video clips in black and white of guys wearing military helmets, kicking the shit out of their citizens. If we saw that in America, we'd be like, okay, there's something wrong, right? So there's a difference. And I don't necessarily think it's universal. It depends on where you are. And I think it's a cultural thing, but correct me if you, if you disagree. So, I mean, obviously I disagree, but I think it would be beside the point. It'd be shoot, you know, it would be pigeonholing us into a conversation, which kind of goes back to a political science thing. I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is that there's this massive underclass in Brazil, which is descended from the slaves, but also indentured servants that lived in colonial and then imperial Brazil. And then ultimately this mass disaffected um, class manifested itself in anarchists and communists. And then finally, of course, there's Getúlio uh, Vargas, who came to power in dictatorship, who balanced the needs basically in a cesarean kind of model where he balanced the patricians' interests and uh, gave some of that wealth to the betterment of the country itself. And so, for instance, one of the great, um, I guess, uh, public works that happened during the dictatorship, not his dictatorship, but the following ones with the Dutra regime, was uh, it was the uh, hydroelectric dam uh, the uh, Itaipu, Itaipu hydroelectric. Yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, a number of other different interstate highways and so on and so forth. All right, let's talk about the dam because I don't know what else we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get a chance to. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know exactly all the statistics on it. I just I know what it looks like because I've, I've looked, looked all that stuff up um, on my own for research purposes and curiosity. Um, it's fascinating. It's, it's, I was huge... physically there. I was physically oh, that's there. Awesome. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It, 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 so huge, what, what river mass, what river does it, does it, it's not the Amazon, right? But it, it's, it's like closer to, um, no. like Paraguay or Uruguay or something like that. Yeah, man. So like I was saying, the, the Itaipu dam was this massive public works. I mean, it was, you know, started in 1966 um, during the Brazilian dictatorship, and it's located on the Paraná River, and it's like it's like basically the third largest hydroelectric dam in the world. I mean, this thing is massive. It generates a, a shit ton of electricity. It's it's absurd. It, it was um, the biggest at one point, and I think the uh, well, I'm pretty sure the Chinese uh, Yangs Creek Gorges Yangtze River is the largest. That thing was huge and it took i don't know 15 years or something to to plan and develop probably longer than that honestly if you go back to the planning phases but that thing took the crown and it's silting up uh, as we speak uh, but um, yeah the uh, the sort of jungle rivers i don't really know what their sediment uh, rates are that that's a big problem though in dams we we covered this a little bit in our episode on hydrology in the Cadillac desert um 
book review, which was a fun episode for me. And we talked about the American dams, which were pretty much put up during the Great Depression, by and large, the big ones, the nice ones, the Hoover Dam, the Grand Coulee, uh, stuff like that. But they still have expiration dates on them because, especially if you take the Hoover Dam, for example, there's a lot of sediment that flows through the Colorado River, and it, it builds up, and it builds up, and it builds up behind um, the dam and in, in, in what is called, I think, Lake Mead behind the Hoover Dam, for example. And the Chinese have that issue, but they, they sort of plowed ahead. Uh, they didn't, didn't want to take heed of that warning. And the dam is amazing because it, its electrical output is obviously one of the crowning values of these things. And they're on the surface, clean energy, uh, setting aside whatever environmental damage to the river itself, they, they offer a tremendous amount. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sort of pontificating here, but I'm giving some context and maybe you can fill mm-hmm. in some Brazilian details, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, one of the big problems with dams is that they, they, they silt up and they, they have to get either dredged or torn down after about a hundred years or so. But what was striking to me was, and I don't know how much of this percentage comes from this particular Itaipu dam, but the Brazilian electrical grid is 60% powered or more by hydroelectric, which is amazing. I mean, the United States probably only runs about 15% or so of its grid off of hydro. And hydro is great because you don't have to buy natural gas from anybody You know, if you don't have it domestically. It, it's renewable because the rain just comes back. Um, it's a great source of power, I think. But the problem is you're limited by your geography. And if you don't have the geography, you can't do it. And I know Brazil also imports a lot of power from its neighbors. Argentina came up uh, last show, and I believe it shares this particular dam, at least the river, with, I think it's Paraguay. So anyway, all that sort of background, that's sort of stuff I'm kind of curious about. Like, what is the what is the importance of this? Uh, how does it affect its like relationship with its neighbors? Uh, how long is this dam going to be there? Um, so you take it away, please. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as far as the reason, the political motive uh, behind the dam was originally to curb, of course, the economic downturn that had happened under the dictatorship, which to your credit, and I'll give it to you, I can hear you already saying told you so, but the tariffs imposed by the dictatorship to foster a uh, you know domestic industry caused a huge economic downturn, right? Um, you know, dirigible economies are not very good for the economy itself. You know what I mean? Um, however, you know, it was a huge Keynesian type situation where the idea was to obviously build a massive asset for uh, for Brazil in general to power all of southern Brazil specifically. Um, but also to employ a number of disaffected Brazilian citizens um, in the, you know, basically creation of this thing. And and also there's a sense of great projects being a great asset and patriotic, uh, you know, kind of gift or something to exalt, if that makes sense. And so it was definitely one of the crowning achievements. I mean, it certainly was a crowning achievement of the world for a time. Um, and I think people don't realize this, but Paraguay, there's actually, you know, just to go back in history, there's this massive war. Uh, in the 1860s, we think about the 
bloodshed of the American Civil War? Well, let me tell you about the War of the Triple Alliance, which basically fought this like absolutely like juiced out of their minds uh, Paraguayan commune, right, led by this ex-priest um, who fought three countries all by himself, you know, Argentina, the Empire of Brazil, and Uruguay together um, in a bid to uh, take over the territory, uh, you know, of Argentina. That's insane. Is there a movie yes. on that? There's got to be a bunch of them. That's such that's, that's a fascinating setup. It, it, it was. It, it is actually pretty crazy. I mean, the Paraguayans just had no quit either. I mean, they fought until the entire male population of Paraguay, yeah. basically nine out of ten men, were killed in Paraguayan like nation. All like, men was, are of fighting age or geez, of, that's of fighting age, excuse me. And that's between sixteen to sixty five. That's still pretty amazing. I mean I and actually I mentioned this, believe it or not, in my little book, Exit Strategy, because that statistic I think under underlines the difference between men and women in combat when you I mean, look, nobody the United States hasn't had a real war in a long time, but if we actually did and we were starting to lose like if if half our if our military was women and they were getting shot you know the next generation would be screwed cuz you couldn't have any children anymore mm-hmm. uh fighting age women whatever the hell that means i mean it's basically going to be young women and that's when you're supposed to be making kids well right. if you kill them uh how are you going to do that so that's why you don't do that and that's why you know military combat especially should be men and i I, i've read that story about paraguay where that i didn't know it was that extreme but that massive it's more than decimate it's sort of like the uh the complement to a decimation it's whatever the latin for 90 percent is (laughs) (laughs) instead of instead of 10 percent of your legion getting killed because they disobeyed the the commander you're just going to kill 90% of them. Uh, that, that's crazy. And so the fact that Paraguay still exists demonstrates that those men were definitely having their pick of the litter of the women later, but they, they were able to reproduce, right? Anyway, weird yeah. tangent, but that, that's, that's amazing. No, but it's, an extre- it's an ex- basically an extermination-level event. I mean, it's, right. it's, the, it's the equivalent of basically what Ukraine is doing right now to its own people is basically fighting a war— for I mean, for what what gains, um, but that's at horrible. the massive oh, it's, cost it's, it's of horrible. the nation. Yeah. And I don't want to talk about it too much, but my yeah. point is yeah. um, the War of the Triple Alliance. Let's be- bring it back here. Mm-hmm. It basically started in 1864 and a- ended in 1870 and caused like basically total half a million dead. So who I mean, who are the allies? You said there's I know there's three countries, but w- what's the alliance? Because if they're fighting each other, right? Like, is, so is it everybody the, against Paraguay? So it's Argentina, yes. Uruguay, and Brazil sure. are the three. Was, <laughs> That's so Paraguay crazy. On one side, and then what? it was Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay on the other side. I mean, if and, you're playing a tabletop war game and you're like, huh, let's pick our capital, Paraguay. Do you? Oh, but but you've got like other territories. No, that's it. Okay, now we're gonna now we're gonna take over the whole continent. I'm like, what? That that's insane. <laughs> you know <laughs> that guy like, lost, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean okay. he lost. He Big lost. I, I have an incredible like respect because they had a lot I of battlefield know. victories. I mean, to be yeah, frank, you, glorious Paraguay losers. Was... I don't know. That's like the Republican <laughs> strategy. I'm not so sure about that. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I get it. I get the sort of individual like respect level. Obviously, they. 
they punched above their weight, but you know, I don't care if you're if you're ten times as strong as the next guy. If if you're going up against a hundred guys, I mean, you're still going to lose. So I don't I don't really see the point in that. And go ahead, please. Well, I mean, not to get too far into the tangent, but military history is replete with examples of men that are outgunned and outmanned, but yeah. winner nonetheless. And I think uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. But when the when the numbers are a little closer. That that's that's too that's too skewed. I'm sorry. All right. Well, <laughs> would you anyway. lead your troops into a battle like that? I'm not sure I'd join your company then. I mean, if well, if you got a chance, you know, way. good. But think, you know. think, think about it this way: Napoleon in northern Italy yeah. was able to defeat the Austrian forces, which were five times his size. Okay. Okay. And still, and still have victory, and actually won it permanently for French Francis. Okay. Favor. All right. So since you're a military guy, uh, and I'm sorry if this is another tangent, but this is why we're having this conversation. We want to learn something. Why did Napoleon win? And why did this Paraguay guy lose? Help me understand that. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, a lot of it came from the fact that he just fought until there, there was no one else to send into battle. I think um, ultimately the most interesting thing is that a lot Par- of Paraguay did that. Correct. Okay. And a lot of the later war, which was very interesting, is that Confederate exiles from the United States emigrated to Brazil and Argentina. And the reason why those three powers started to win in the late era of the war was because of these advisors that came to train and formalize and equip and uh, teach um, the the Brazilian, Argentinian, Uruguayan general staff and general discipline of of the army Mm. i think what happened was basically the militaries of this of of the imperial powers were very kind of soft and uh, they were inexperienced because that is the only foreign war brazil has ever fought by the way ever in its entire existence yeah it's very interesting i mean aside from world war ii with a token expeditionary division one division that fought in italy and that had to be equipped and trained up by american forces local you know so i mean i don't know if i would count that but like that was the main war that brazil ever fought and uh everything else was internal conflicts now i i mean ultimately what happened was basically they got dogpiled and you know there's only so much you can do with what you got and you're absolutely right of course you know there are force dynamics and and uh power you know kind of there you need to have mass in the first place and you can only fight so much you Mm -hmm. know um but i i mean it's impressive to me what this this uh, Federalist Party, the Federal Party in Paraguay did, which is basically quickly industrialized Paraguay um, into a proto-communistic commune country, basically huh. Soviet Union, made everyone militant, militarized, and had a vision of expanding the borders of Paraguay to cultivate more land um, for the uh, local Indian uh, like uh, people that were basically paraguayans look very similar to bolivians by the way huh oh yeah. really so there it was it it's was very, sort of a kind of a indigenous population versus more of a european one it sounds like mm-hmm. Fascinating. it's precisely it's precisely that and the most interesting thing is is, is of course the elite it's just like it reminds me of this guy called comandante marcos and he is like 
this leader of this rebel indigenous group in in the Mayan Peninsula, the Yucatan Peninsula, but this guy's like a hundred percent like Spaniard white. It's well, really funny. Yeah. Marcos sounds the, a little Spanish, but <laughs> yeah. and the president of, of Paraguay, by the way, is uh, Francisco Salono Lopez, and this guy, like, yeah, he, you know, he looks like somebody out of Spain. And I, I think it's really funny is that people have this preconception in their mind that like all Spaniards are like indigenous looking and that's like completely fucking false. Uh, who who I mean, thinks that? I mean Mexico's maybe where they're getting that from, but I Yeah, but but I don't that's know generally what, the yeah. the zeitgeist, you know what I mean? That's that's basically, you know, when people think of Mexico, they don't think of Canelo, you know, they they, they think of, you know, Home Depot, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, well, I, okay, their their sort of political elite is it's sort of both like let's be honest like the, historically i think it was probably more spanish looking but the recent run of presidents they've had uh obrador and people like that i mean they they look like mestizos and so um i mean people have recency bias they sort of look at the headlines and don't really look at the whole scope of history which is a lot harder obviously but um it's not completely wrong. I mean, to, to have that sort of understanding of Mexico, I don't think now Brazil, I don't quite, I can't quite put my finger on what the sort of Brazilian, I guess Bolsonaro looks like European or something, but like Dilma Rousseff, like, I don't know what she looks Hispanic ish sort of, I guess, but that name, I never really knew where that, that came from. It sounds like Russian or something. It's um, French. French. Fascinating. Okay. So, so yeah, I don't know. Let's bring it back to Brazil, I guess, for a moment. Like, what what is the sort of ruling class of Brazil like? So, I guess the ruling class of Brazil is obviously heavily Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's still, you know, scions of the imperial family around, you know, uh, Bragança and so on. I think actually the recent one died in the 90s in a plane crash by accident. I think it ended his line, I believe. But there are people related to him. And also there are local aristocratic people that were made nobles when the Empire of Brazil began. So, you know, the you know Duke of Caxias and so on and so forth. Now, what are they like temperamentally? Um, there is this very strong Anglophonic impulse in the higher class case i don't know why but basically they're obsessed with both france and and england and uh you know they both uh, kind of want to emulate what's happening all brazilian culture or like the fad of the moment is basically british culture 10 years past hmm. does that make sense so, not not really i mean i guess i can sort of follow what you're saying but i don't know why uh, i mean I, i'm not even like making a value judgment which it sounds like you're doing a little bit, but, uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know where that connection comes from. Um, because they're not, they're not British stock. Maybe there's a little bit of French Dilma Rousseff, I guess, but wh- where's the connection coming from? That's what I don't understand. Like in America, you know, that, that is a connection, but, and there's all these doofuses that like care about what the Royal family's doing today. But I mean, okay. It has no bearing on my life, but some people find that fascinating, but at least I understand that in America where there's like a, that history, that historical connection. I don't get that in Brazil because the, the mm-hmm. connection was Portugal. Right. And maybe there's like, we want to disassociate from Portugal. I don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating, but what do you think the connection comes from? You know, to be honest, I think it's just because 
they admire that like these countries have their shit together <laughs> yeah that's what i mean it's like we disassociate from whatever we are and then connect with some yeah other, i mean it's emulating yeah. you know great men you know if if a country okay. is doing something better than you i think there's nothing wrong with trying to emulate and imbibe okay. certain aspects so of then that. why didn't you just say like you don't get it so what why why do you think it doesn't make sense for brazil do you think that the well, british don't have their shit together and they shouldn't be emulated or my personal, I mean, this is a personal value judgment. It's like, you know, uh, well, how do I say this tactfully? I think. Of Just say course, what you think. It, don't worry, man. Yeah. Well, I think it's a matter of professionalism. I think, okay. I think yeah, the Anglo world has done a lot of great things and you can't deny it. You can't right. deny like, absolutely. You know, uh, yeah the logistical Henry Ford types. I love a Henry Ford. Um, you well, can't he, he deny. Was Irish. He was Irish, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and, That's uh, the, the Irish question. We'll set that aside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean the Anglophonic world, you know, the, the bourgeois world yeah, and, yeah. and the idea of, of innovation of, uh, basically, I, I don't know, like law and order and all this kind of stuff. But right. you know, right. the, the thing is that I don't like about British culture, which, which is different from German culture, which I like very much, is that the Germans, they have all that and yeah. they have all the technological innovation, but they also don't forget who they are. And they have the most important uh, values, which are, you know, based on primarily military values, right? The Prussian, you know, impetus to their country uh -huh. is exactly why they're so great. I mean, the discipline... And the law-abidingness, of course, is important. The the will to, you know, exalt intelligent or exceptional people is important. Gotcha. And I think I think in the anglophonic world, you don't necessarily see that. I think that people really are. They would sell their daughters for thirty pieces of silver. And That's a stereotype, but I, I get I get the sort of contrast you're making. I mean, what countries only fans? based out of what's you know what countries of i don't know Florida, israel or, or i'm sorry brazil um <laughs> <laughs> right but but you know the funny thing is you remember when um that uh, basically pedophilic movie on netflix came out with little children twerking and stuff yeah it, it wasn't in america that netflix headquarters got firebombed it was in sao paulo brazil so ultimately yeah, like okay. the, the reason why i got taken down globally was because the English may have offered latent words, but at least, you know, the French and, and the Portuguese and the Brazilian or whatever, they actually like held to account these pedophiles. And that's the issue with okay. um, individual liberties and the cult of the shopkeeper is that it assumes that everyone, ev everyone is a consumer and of equal value, of equal dignity, of equality as such. And there is nothing more low than the idea of equality, right? Because like, Really, like that's what Nietzsche says: is that there is no one more inferior than those that insist on being equal, and it is because of like well, yeah. that bourgeois, that bourgeois revolution, uh, revolution of 1776 that gave rise to, of course, the Commune of Paris. And I'll keep on harping on this before, but I think there are many great things about the Anglo-Saxon world and and you know, and, and, you know, the empire and stuff like that. But I think that it's infected with this bourgeois value 
which we need to figure out how to overcome. Now, do I want to be Brazil? Not really. I, I think America has a lot of exceptional qualities that should be maintained, but I think there are some very important things that we need to learn from other cultures and have the self-respect and understanding that just mm -hmm. because there's a price for something doesn't mean we should ever sell that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or, or allow it to be sold or you know what I mean, by proxy. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's more of a sense of pride. And I, I don't know why. I think I think Anglos don't really care for pride or, or convention or, or that kind of thing in the sense of, like, self-worth. But I think having... A a outward displays of... I mean, historically, like, outward displays of pride are somewhat looked down upon, it seems, in English culture. Although today... If you go clubbing in Manchester, uh, there's a hell of a lot of that. So it's it's sort of gotten degenerate, maybe perhaps today. And and we're I think we're thinking of like, you know, men in sort of uh, powdered wigs kind of days where there was a lot of pomp and circumstance. But I think it was done. It was conducted in a weird sort of, um, you could say feminine, but it was a very sort of controlled way that sort of was expected to be done not in a garish fashion it had to have taste and eh, there's some value there I, I think it's interesting but as opposed to maybe a latin culture which is like hey you know look at me you know boom 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 i'm uh ricky martin or whatever the heck the latest uh, latin sensation is it's very out in your face and a little bit more uh I don't well, know, it's not even just about exciting, that. It's about guess, but... it's about what honor really is about. It's about power, right? I mean, people might deny it, especially people. Honor that are very... is about power. That's interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. But go ahead. go ahead. I think I think people say like, especially if you read Kipling, they say honor is about integrity. Mm, but that's remember, what I more think of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but remember, there's a dichotomy. Honor culture is about being perceived to have be honorable, whereas guilt culture is about personal consciousness yes. of perceived dishonor. Fair. And fair. these are two very different things. Yes. And even in our military culture in the United States, it is primarily an honor culture. It doesn't give a fuck about guilt. Whereas <laughs> that's, that's whereas, interesting. Yeah. I'm serious. I'm very serious. No, no, no. And, you're, you're the expert on this. I, I, I think, I think there's a lot to what you say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like you might call that superficial, but remember that not everyone has, uh, it has the utility of basically, um, how do you say social contracts? It upholds a social contract far more effectively than guilt consciousness, right? Because remember, Protestants would rather go to the grave than infringe on their personal cons conscience, rather than you know someone that's an, from an honor culture would rather die or kill themselves than be dishonored publicly. And you see this, of course, in Japanese culture even mm -hmm. to today. Yeah. Um, but you see this, for instance, in VMI. Um, and Virginia Military Institute, um, when a cadet is being was caught, let's say, for some kind of moral infringement, mm -hmm. um, before the day they were kicked out, which is they're called drummed out, right? And basically, everyone in the college was lined up in full military uniform. Drumhead trial. Is that where that comes uh, from? I'm not so sure, but the the idea is basically they're drummed out. They're with a drum and they're yeah. escorted off the premises. It's a big sh public shaming kind of thing. When was the last time that happened? I don't know, but the interesting thing the, is the, the 80s. That I mean, yeah, it'd be probably day, good if it happened more. 
the day before that happens, they're put in a room and that room has a cot, a meal, and a hook in the ceiling to hang yourself. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, so remember, How many people like, have taken that, that opportunity up um, in America? Probably not too many. In Japan, Many they, cadets they have. in the 1800s. Eight, yeah, a long time ago, maybe. Sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, you know, like, I think... I think that's the thing, and that's been my personal my personal conviction is that in the United States, this existed. The culture that I'm talking about, this martial aristocratic honor culture, existed in the South, which is what the Cavalier yes. culture is. Yes, yes. And yes. it's the American culture that I'm trying to champion and revitalize in the United States. Because okay, but but is this the honor culture that you also say does not have guilt? Yes. And you don't like guilt, or you do. In general, don't I don't like guilt. I think that um, I think Why? if you're going to be a criminal, I think there's nothing more gross than needing redemption. And you see this in Wait Christians. A but, but, but guilt. Why does that have to necessarily imply redemption? I I just thought of it personally. Correct me, but I just thought of guilt as an internal anger at yourself for failing to uphold a moral code. And it doesn't necessarily promise any redemption, but it's sort of like as opposed to an external anger of shame from others. It's an internal anger directed at yourself for a failure. Mm-hmm. I never associate it necessarily with salvation or something or redemption, but maybe that's what it is. And maybe I just didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, It. I mean... The origin of this dichotomy comes from, you know, the Indo-European understanding of morality, which is basically ends-oriented as opposed to means-oriented of Platonism Mm. and thereby Christianity. And to buttress my argument, it is basically this guilt consciousness really only begins with, of course, Thomas Aquinas, like at least in Western philosophical thought. Um, and you know, you see the antipode of this, of, of honor culture in, in the European militaries, which is to be always perceived beyond, um, rumor or doubt of your integrity. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense? Because I think ultimately the, I, I the get the construction. I'm just trying to map it onto what I know from my understanding. Mm-hmm. And I, for example, I, I do think that. Christianity, for example, does, it depends on what church you're in, I guess, but it it does talk about guilt as opposed to shame as the way I've defined it. And it is not necessarily something that, well, in church, it definitely is tied to your ultimate judgment by God. But you in Protestant teachings cannot guarantee that by your deeds. Now in Catholic systems, you can get forgiveness and you can do good works and stuff like that. And you can be redeemed by, by a priest or somebody like that. It's a little bit different, but it kind of, it's very nuanced and I'm not really all that scholarly on that stuff, but I've started to study a little bit more, but, mm-hmm. but you're saying that, I, I don't know when you say Indo-European, that's a, such a sweeping kind of depending on like what time period even you're talking about. That's, that's a really vague and general concept. So maybe you can narrow it down a little bit more. And you, you also mentioned the, the European 
military culture, which I can sort of see how, you know, you offended me. We, we must duel and, you know, to, to defend my honor. I, yeah, I get that. I see that. Um, but again, I, I still believe that Europeans do feel guilt. It's not just about honor or right. shame. I think it's not a it's not a dichotomy. It, it's it's about emphasis because guilt oh. and honor exist coterminously. However, it's okay. the emphasis. So I agree with you. Fair like enough. you know, I'm not saying to completely disassociate with guilt. But I just think it's really cringe when someone thinks that guilt is really like the most t- terrible thing to have you know to incur on oneself. But they keep on doing it anyway. At a certain point, if you're going to be a criminal, that? I'm not like, sure I understand who you're who you're thinking of when you mention that. I understand why so, you think it's cringe, but who does that? So. Remember at the beginning of the episode, the guy that held up my mom and yeah. those people and ended up killing? Same thing. Basically, you know, he obviously has guilt conscious yeah, he does. consciousness because he came up to me and had to basically use me as a priest to absolve him of his sins. But I don't absolve him. <laughs> You're right. I don't forgive him. You're right. And this is why, like, Christians exist is because they need forgiveness because everything must be ex- excusable. Um. And that's the difference between honor and guilt is that there are crimes wait, that wait, are wait, not. Wait, wait, wait. Christians don't say everything is excusable. That's not correct. What that is you... absolutely correct. I mean, why would there not be a remission of sins? Everything there... is not excusable if you talk to well, Christians. They say there's there's some sins that you need to you repent. Can... You need to repent for, but you have to mean it. But it doesn't guarantee it, and, it, and it, you're going to get excused for it. That that's my forgiveness understanding. Forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's the whole point of the uh, of Christ, right? Is the remission of all sins. If you if you follow the, the sort of rules, yeah, but it doesn't guarantee it. That that's really my emphasis here. It's like you you say it again. You said everything can be excused. Uh, that, that's that's too strong I, a statement. I think. I, 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 yeah. Then I would say then everything can be forgiven. Yes, but on, honor yes. can't be forgiven. Yes. I, I, I kind of get your point, though. I, I understand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I'm probably going to step on your toes and the majority of the audience that's listening because we all come from a Christian. I'm myself. I'm baptized Catholic. You know what I mean? I come from a Catholic, you know, family background. Yeah. I, you know, went through confirmation and, you know, I was very interested in, you know, in Christian theology and whatever. And, and obviously very prominently abandoned Christianity at itself for something more genuine like as far as like I believe to be, I personally believe to be like Indo-European. However, I think it, you know, Thomas Aquinas is probably the best example Uh of something really kind of like contemptible to me. Uh Um, It's really annoying. It's just like sad sack kind of stuff. I think that if you're going to commit a crime, you should be equal to that crime and have no guilt conscious for it. I mean, like if you're going to be man enough to commit something, do something bad, be strong enough to live with it. And I think that's the difference. Fair, but shouldn't they also clean their act up? I mean, how you would encourage criminals to stop being criminals, I would hope. Well, of course. Okay, so how by... do you do that? I mean, yeah, not don't use just words, right? Actions, I would assu- I would assume, is what you're meaning, or? Yeah, of course, okay. and and I think that's okay. the the interesting thing, and I'll bring it back to Brazilian history, right? Is that in America, the reason why Brazil is today what it is today is because of human rights liberalism because of this idea of um how do you say the uh, 
dignity of the human condition or whatever BS people are pushing nowadays. However, before that, if you were a criminal, you'd be death squatted. If you were a journalist excusing the crimes of criminals, of the criminal case, if you were you know, excusing a murder or rape or putting forth, aiding, abetting, kind of like uh, the defense of a criminal, you were disappeared. And the positive effect of that, of course, is a lack of criminality because criminals don't exist anymore and because people advocating for cri uh, criminals don't it, exist anymore. Yeah, if, if the criminals only exist on, on the street and the police are not corrupt and the government is not corrupt, right? Right, but, right. I mean, we're, a lot of assumptions there. Right. And, and, and that's the thing with uh, and why the dictatorship was such a salubrious period of time for Brazilian cultures. Because okay, of course, uh, I have of a good vocabulary, but not that good. Explain what that means. Sorry. <laughs> uh, like it was a beneficial time. It was a good time. It oh, was a okay. time of progress, of industrialization, of strengthening of, of common core education, of et okay. cetera. Because of course, of course, there was corruption. I mean, yeah. Whatever. But it was corruption I, I, at the highest okay. level. And I'm not trying to take away from the good things, okay? I just right. want to make sure that, at least in my opinion, for whatever the hell that's worth, there, there's no panacea. And when you say something like, you know, there's no crime when you kill criminals, mm -hmm. yeah, but it, it's sort of a, it's a very simple, broad statement, and it assumes a lot because... Mm -hmm. When people normally think of criminals, they're thinking of crime that they, it's obvious, right? But right. there's not obvious crime that it oftentimes has a much grander negative effect that a lot of people don't understand. And that is harder to enforce against. I mean, just take white collar crime. I mean, the insider trading, whatever it is. I mean, it's super tricky stuff. And it can be extremely damaging over a long period of time because it's so subtle because and and because it doesn't get stopped because of that, so anyway, I think you, I think we're on the same page. But go ahead, please. Yeah, and obviously for as a you know as a notification for you guys, I think you guys have to understand I'm very bombastic. So when I make <laughs> exaggerated terms or proclamations, please take it with like a heavy sack of salt, not just a grain of salt. You know what I mean? What about a, what about a sack of sugar from Brazil? Is that, uh, is yeah, that amplifying or no? Okay. Yeah, they put sugar in their water. Can you believe that? It's, I think we like do that crazy. in America too. Uh, it's called oh, Coca, Coca Cola, but it's really, not, it's not good oh. for you either way. <laughs> it's bad. That's real. It's really bad. bad. But don't they have no, like but, a coffee that is like super sugary? Isn't that like a Brazilian coffee? Have I am, am I remembering right? Or where, where's that from? Or is that no? I think that's a Singaporean coffee. Another place where they have a lot of coffee, but I was about to say, are you thinking about Starbucks? Because that sounds like Starbucks. I don't, to me. I don't buy that crap, but mainly because it's over <laughs> overpriced. But I do not right. understand the Starbucks culture at all. At all. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> please continue. Sorry for the tangent. No, no. So I guess my, well, I guess I kind of lost myself here. Um, my fault. My fault. No, 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 no. I guess the point that happened during the dictatorship was this: is that America's modern issues now is that it, it stems from our inability, like it's a Bolshevik communist insurgency that's insinuating itself in a systematic way, right? Basically, not only do you have crime, which is normal, but you have basically HIV of the soul. We have people that 
that crusade for the rights of criminals mm-hmm. who aided and abet and diminished the crime that they got, who actively fight against the organs and executors of justice, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, soldiers, policemen, judges, who take, you know, uh, judicial positions, offer free legal advocacy. Yeah. And all for whom? For what? For the lowest people of the low, the ones that bring us all down. And it's never for those who are good people. And it, that's the fundamental issue that's happening in the United States, which was absent in Brazil. Because, of course, you have dons, and, of course, they get their cut. However, they only had their mandate to rule so long as you know, conditions for the general populace were improving, and they did. And that's the thing that I think mm. America is uniquely incapable of defending itself because it is uniquely a bourgeois and low-caste society because it is fundamentally rubbing shoulders with these people. I mean, our presidents, for instance, were bootleggers like uh, the Kennedys, um, you know, petty criminals. No, and so I mean, on. He, he didn't last very long. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think um, – you know, say what you want about the the junta that they, you know, and first of all, Rousseff and Lula were communist terrorists during yeah. the 60s and 70s. <laughs> Many <who> such were, cases. <laughs> who killed men, yeah. women, and children, by the way, in bombings. Dilma and, Rousseff did that or her family? That's right. Really? She did. She she actually was. She was a bomb maker or did she go out with a gun? She like, bom- she, I think she like shot some like. Yeah minor official ended up in prison you know who she looks like Have you ever seen scarface she looks like like that chick holding the machine gun under the pillow i can totally <laughs> see that now I don't yeah know if you know that scene but he t- tony goes in there to uh to get um the 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 yayu or what yayu whatever the hell they're calling it and uh and they're supposed to make a trade and they don't oh it's not here and it's like and then she she's like she thinks the deal's going south so she pulls the gun out I can see it. I can see it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, my point that I'm trying to make, the overarching theme, is that ultimately, say what you want about aristocrats and martial culture, at least there is order and and justice for even petty criminals, and there's no petty criminality. The people that just don't like that are the ones themselves who are in cahoots with criminals or those that are too soft inside to see justice done and that's what they exploit and ultimately anyway point being is 1991 1992 the dictatorship is overthrown in the name of democracy and fernando Henrique cardoso becomes to power and he actually had a good reign uh, was very stable and very good for brazilian society however criminality increased and then finally lula came and he's as a candidate from the Partido Trabalhador, which is a communist party, mm. and then everything went fucking downhill, which is what happened with the mass corruption, systemic corruption from top to bottom. Nothing worked. I mean, I think the funniest thing, uh, remember when um, Bolsonaro lost the elect, or quote unquote, lost the election? Yeah, that was that was what last year. That was recent, right? Yes, yes. Okay. The funniest thing is you see prison prisoners cheering the outcome of the election when Lula can, comes back to power. I know. I mean, if you want to know what you're dealing with, look at the people who, I, I remember this. Like I, I remember when OJ Simpson got let off, uh, it's going back 95, I think. Um, 
I remember I was in sort of a school where there are a lot of, uh, let's just say not white people in it. And I remember, I, I, I had no idea this was, this was going to happen. I didn't really put those together at that age, but, um, I remember the, the cheers from around me, like all the classrooms and they were just rooting for this guy because they weren't, because the guy wasn't white and they're like, oh, they, they associate that with them. And so it's, it's so interesting to see these alliances. And I mean, it's, it's more than interesting. It's important to understand this stuff, but to, to, so, to connect those dots, it's really important to know who's backing whom. You know, the interesting thing is that this problem isn't new. You know, this is a, and cause humans, even though we're surrounded with technology that it's, you know, ostensibly unprecedented, right? Um, we are still fundamentally biologically the same. We organize society along the same tribal lines, writ large, of course. And I think the reason why we are succumbing to the sicknesses of our modern day is because of our lack of strength within to see harsh justice done. So uh, mm. you call this the liberalizing, you know, they call it pro progress, they call it liberalization, they call it freedom, they call it, you know, all these things, uh, the betterment of mankind. Yeah, however. yeah, it's basically just a big yes to everything. That's that's my problem with it. I think I think Except being they being say no to you and me though they say no. You yeah, that's the ironic. It, you 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 have to be tolerant, uh, except when you're not tolerant of the stuff that I like, and then I'm going to be intolerant to you. I mean that that's that's been a hypocritical observation for or complaint, I should say, for the past 30 years since this political correctness shit came out. But um, yeah, right. exactly. So the interesting thing, and if you don't let me rant for a little bit so I can actually like make it make sense for the audience, but here's the thing yeah. that the reason why I want to impart this history so importantly onto Americans is because I think America, because of its very Christian, spiritually Christian even though they might be agnostic or atheist, they are very Christian, more than Christian, um, and Bolshevik, um, and all this kind of stuff. And I think that like we have been uniquely disarmed with the antibodies requisite to maintain a culture and a society. And I mean, this is a pervasive thing, but you know, I'm trying to provide the people with an example of how to overcome this, right? How to overcome Bolshevism before it overcomes you and so i guess to bring it back you know lula comes to power and then rusev and then bolsonaro is a brief respite and then it goes back to lula now and things are getting out of control i mean crime is skyrocketing it's basically a license for um you know crime and economic downturn which results because of crime. So the secondary effect of criminality is, of course, people can't conduct business. Which I hope you can know that. You can, do, do you, you have uh, Do you have any statistics on that? Not to say that I don't agree or agree or believe you, um, mm -hmm. but if you if you had just by any chance, like, or or an estimate, just like what what are we talking about here? Are we talking about like robberies, murders? Like, did it did it go up by ten percent? 50%, yes. just just estimate it roughly if you don't have the exact numbers. But I, I want to have a, an understanding of what exactly you're talking about. So the Brazilian government obviously funges those numbers, but UNESCO and the UN actually is pretty honest. And I think it was huh. something like in Bahia, uh, the rate of like basically uh, murders per capita increased 505%. And this was Whoa. 2000. 
and well, this is an old statistic, 2017. And obviously, you know. So, so at the end of the dictatorship, 91 mm -hmm. to 2017, mm -hmm. almost 30 years later. Yeah. And the funny thing is, though, is that it's the same echelon of people that are, are trying to promulgate this because the, the case of people who are trying to liberalize Brazil mm -hmm. are the same ones that are here. It's the same shit libs. It's the ones that are going up to the favelas. They're rich, you know, white kids that do cocaine and drugs and think they're one of the yeah, proletariat. Yeah. So they LARP and then they play savior right. and it's the same bullshit, but it has a negative positive uh, it has a positive uh, feedback loop right it increased cr criminality increased uh, shit livery increased all this kind of stuff and the country is coming undone and um, basically you're going to start seeing this happen here and in the united states especially because we don't well, have don't don't we already see it i mean this whole exactly. blm stuff was kind of that, that idea like get rid of the police and Right. Right. It's Bolshevism and Marxism in, in its variety. But, but aren't, aren't people? I'm not. I'm not saying there's going to be like a golden arrow anytime soon. I'm pretty cynical about this, but I, I do see some promising indications that people. I mean, look, let's face it. BLM was just a, a, a psyop to get Biden in office. I mean, I, I don't really think it's that much more complicated. But I, I think. The, the net effect of that is, you know, the morons on Facebook are going to regurgitate this stuff because they think it's actually a real thing. But I've noticed that some of those people and some of the stupid politicians like in San Francisco are admitting that like having no police is probably not a good idea because all businesses are leaving. You know, nobody can walk down the street safely and it's causing problems for them. Now that, now that it affects them, they care, right? That's usually how people are. But I do see that. I do see people like noticing that this was a bad idea. And it's not to say that the cops aren't not to say that the cops are perfect. They're, they're not, nobody is, but to have no cops, that's anarchy. And it, that, that doesn't, it's absolutely insane. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you're seeing, I mean, it's funny because I've lived in Brazil and I see this a mile off and because America was built by strong men who I honor and who had, you know, mores and made shit work, you know, even in the wild West where there was tons of like, I guess, murder and, and theft and all that stuff. Even then there was a modicum of understanding and honor and like, uh, you know, don't kill children, don't kill, you know, women, um, you know, th which doesn't exist for Bolsheviks. Everyone is fair game because society itself is just, you know, it's, it's a non thing. And, you know, my greatest worry is that they will succeed because we have no, we have no, no way to meet that, that kind of existential threat. And the interesting thing is that as this phenomenon increases and pervades all of society you'll see a lot less shit libs because here's the thing is that liberals always come from the same insulated locations of the country or they're usually mentally ill which statistics bear that out mm -hmm. but the ones that are right. you know good good people that are honest that kind genuine people of course they come from the most insulated places and they never want to live in the shit that they made so in brazil right. um the the corollary of course is the all the rich people that live in zona you insulated from the the rampant criminality of the old city that you know basically go to the best schools that go to the best colleges that have 
all you know the connections necessary to be rich themselves but they love playing savior on the weekends when they go to the club and do cocaine and you know are just you know basically they like playing savior this i don't know most most of the shit libs i know smoke marijuana but uh i think it's interesting you're you're talking about the well i guess Yeah. yeah i mean cocaine is a bigger um cultural imprint in in brazil than it is in the united states for obvious really? reasons wait what, yeah, it's I not mean, obvious to me what why not not to say you're wrong but i just don't understand that so 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 coca cultivation it happens in bolivia okay and oh bolivia okay ranges okay. of south yeah. america and so basically yeah, it's a okay. major tour towards the sea you know to the rest of the world and cocaine is extremely cheap i, and I did hear good. um what's her face she was a victoria's secret model from brazil she she was a big cokehead um Adriana Lima. Exactly. Yeah, that's the yeah. one. Yeah, that's funny. Um, is that? I well, that's, guess that's, that's true. Huh? Yeah. yeah, it's it's actually called the uh, what was it called? It was called the model, um, the supermodel uh, diet. Just basically, eat, you know, eating cocaine. You know, so you I mean, I, I'm I'm sort of facetiously asking you, but what does that do to your brain? I mean, I've seen brain scans of people who've done a lot of coke, and it's. Uh, not it makes good. you Brazilian. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you ba- basically take your brain and uh, and vaporize ten percent of it. That's kind of what it does. It seems. Yeah, I mean, it, it has it rewires your brain too in a, a very negative way. It makes you. Um, um, it also has important impulse control, like circuits are broken. Broken. Um, I think those are the most important societal level things that have impact. So cocaine actually rewires your brain so that way you're a high time preference person and you have yeah, it makes sense. inhibited, um, you know, no feedback loops. So basically you have a harder time like discipline with discipline and self-discipline. Yeah. And I mean, you see this born out in, You're impulsive. in Brazilian culture. Yeah. yeah. You become impulsive and, you know, effectively whatever. Anyway, long story short, the only way to like really fix a Bolshevik problem is through the ways they understand, which is fear and reprisal. And like that's sad and like unfortunate, but it's true. Well, that's the and, fascist answer to it. I don't know if it's ultimately the, the solution because fascism didn't win. Um, it, it was an attempt and it worked in sort of temporarily, but i'm just going to be real with you there's an appeal of bolshevism that is based on the fact that people are not equal and the people that are on the low end of that scale i don't i don't care how much you're you're going to point a gun at them they're still going to resent you and they're still going to want a system that gives them a chance to do better that's just that's just normal that's just biology they're going to want a way to advance in life now i don't think it's great well, I, 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 frankly, I hate the, the Bolshevik solution because it, it, it's bullshit, first of all, theoretically, even people say it great, it's great on paper. No, it, it actually doesn't really work. But in practice, it's even worse. So I don't like it, but I do understand the appeal of it. And you need to understand that psychology because simply repressing their ability to act out doesn't make the desire go away. And I think that's the deeper issue that we're dealing with because if we don't give them an outlet that gives them a genuine sense of this is my society too and I'm not going to burn it to the ground now because of that, I don't think we're going to fix it. 
I, I honestly don't think we're going to fix it unless we figure out a way to give them a reason not to want to fucking burn it down. And I don't want them well, to do okay. it. And I okay, don't want well. to forgive them either. But there are some people who are poor and they're going to want a way out. And of course, we need to understand I mean, that. We can't just be like, oh, you know, it's just their criminals are bad. And, you know, some criminals are desperate. And we need to understand that, too. So, I mean, you're asking, and this is a genuine question, Adam. I mean, do you recognize, you know, the biological diversity of people? Of do course. you recognize within even a nation? Yes. A a bell curve of IQ and so on. I mean, so, you really think I don't? I mean, of course I do. I, yeah. I, I guess it's rhetorical. I mean, it's rhetorical because if you want people to have an inculcated sense of gratification, delayed gratification, of self-discipline, of yes. all these things for, yeah. which require higher order cerebral, you know, self-discipline, yeah. you can't expect that of people that don't have that hardware. I mean, it's like... I asking, agree with you. I agree with you. Like, but you yeah, need to give them like something that... But don't you think Fear. you need to give them something positive, not just negative? Fear. That's it? No, because – you know why? Because, I mean, all the law is predicated on fear and coercion. All your neurological systems, the brain was developed for pain avoidance and damage avoidance. I mean it, from you know, basically the most preliminary neuron development in our you know, evolutionary chain came from avoiding pain which is far more of a strong impulse than pleasure is, euphoria is. And it's already been borne out multiple times in psychological and psychiatric studies, which pain retains better than uh, reward does. And, I mean... All right, I guess so, but you, you accept that some people do have a reward function of advancement, yes. let's say. Yes, okay, yes. but then how do you delineate between those that do and don't? And how do you avoid our society turning into, you know, gulags, you know, of basically, you know, a, a whether it's communist or, or, or fascist, I don't, I don't really care. It's basically a guy holding a gun at you for having a wayward opinion. I mean, I, I think cr crime is bad. I want to stop that. But I do think having an open discourse is probably the way to go for the long term. It's messier, agreed, but it, it is, it's really the only example I know of where it allows a society to actually advance itself, obviously in the ways that I'm familiar with technologically, economically. Now, maybe you don't care about that, but I, I do. don't, yeah. And so we need to have some acceptance of that, right? Where you have, you know, a police officer not showing up at your door for not putting a mask on. I mean, like, where do you stand on that stuff? It's like, th there's, there's over, there, there's, there's over corrections from the government, right? And of course. they punish you for stupid stuff. And so nobody wants that, right? But how do you develop a system that gets rid of that, but also gets rid of the crime? That, that's the golden. Compartmentalization. Okay. Certain types of people are meant for certain things. People such as yourself who are responsible, who have a good temperament, who have the mental capacity for free thought uh -huh. um, and basically, you know, rigorous thought as well, who are, you know, of good moral fiber. That's what the use of universities were for historically it was for people who were, you know, 
basically divergent thinkers who mm. thought beyond, you know, over the hill. Yeah, 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 However, yeah. you can't have a Savonarola, you know, everywhere in society. I think the majority of society I, I needs a, a unified, you. Yeah. you know, understanding of life, a unified purpose and discipline. It is the preserve of the very few of the aristocratic types, you know what I mean? That yeah. can think beyond, have the license, have the responsibility. So maybe like a, a, a Mandarin kind of like testing system where you have, uh, I don't know if it should be completely state controlled, but there's various examples of this throughout the world. Like Germany has a three-tiered system of education where you are identified at a pretty young age at, to what your aptitudes are and you go through, I forget what it's called, like Hochschule or something like that, but you... And then you get diplomat or university. I forget all the words, but effectively there's like, okay, you're going to go work in a factory. Okay. You're going to work in an office or you're going to work in the research lab. Like, so in that order of like intellectual capability. Now, is that, should there be four categories? Should there be two categories? I mean, you could argue about that. And I would just say, basically like, just test it, show what the evidence is. That's my approach. But well, you know, my I, personal... I think these are good discussions because without having these like thoughts, I mean, it's just going to be demagoguery and people are going to get angry. And it's, I think you need to have some kind of understanding of what does work versus yeah. what might work in, in theory. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I think IQ worship is wrong. Is that it's you're not simply selecting for IQ. You're yeah, it's also too simple. selecting. For, yeah, you need other. Yeah, for a suite yeah. of care, you know, temperament. Because I, I trust you. There are many high IQ criminals. Yeah. High Absolutely. IQ people, you know that are. You know who said that recently? Um, that oh. it caught my attention. I mean, you know, people make fun of me for this, but and I, I understand some of it, but also, f off, you know, because show yeah. me in a show me a better example. But Elon Musk said recently, you know, I've made the mistake of hiring simply on intellectual qualifications. And that was a mistake. It actually turns out that it's important for that person to also have a good heart mm -hmm. for whatever that re means. And you can look at it cynically, but I, I think there's some genuine sincerity there with him. Like, I think he's for, for whatever reason, but I think he's right that you need to have somebody you can trust a mm -hmm. and, and B it's like, what are we doing here? It's like, if we're, if we're just going to have, psychopaths who are smart i mean you can it's not a society election. i want to live in you know it's like yeah, yeah. sorry what's that it's like being it's like electing hannibal lecter to be like, exactly taking care it's, of it's a perfect know? example yeah he's gonna cannibalize your ass yeah you know and and i don't want to interrupt you but if you don't uh, just don't interrupt me for this small segment yeah right go ahead um it, this is something i came to grips with which is I used to be of the belief that just high IQ, high capability is requisite enough to rule a society justly and for the common good. However, I came to understand that temperament and, and things that we kind of, especially I guess Nietzscheans, kind of take as almost um, unimportant, which is the moral aspect, the moral mm. integrity of a person very much matters. The mm -hmm. temperament of a person very much matters. The, the um, Their goals that they're oriented towards very much matters. And to be frank with you, Adam, like, you know, and, you know, cards on the table. Um, as a young kid, I was definitely one of those kids that was pretty fucked up, you know, like a kind of a Machiavellian character. Mm. Um, and to be frank with you, like, yeah, I'm very, I hate, I hate saying this, but I don't feel guilt naturally. You know what I'm saying? And, mm. um, but here's the thing. And I think one thing that has carried me through is my love for truth. 
mm-hmm. even if it hurts me. And the thing is, I realize that, you know, especially because I love the military, I love the military culture and so on. But the most important thing about military culture in general is that they don't just select. I mean, they used to select for IQ as, as well, but now they for equal opportunity, they had to, like, put that away. Um, however, it was very interesting that the Marine Corps and the Naval Academy general prescribed a a IQ test, obviously, but also, more importantly, they did a background search about your moral character hmm. and fiber. And I think that is so important because ultimately um, – and, and that's why I suggest that I think every individual – who wants to become a leader of a country or a local leader must pass through the gradient of military service because military service, I know you probably have some contempt because you're an engineer and you're very like, you know, no, no, I don't have contempt for the military. No. Well, some people do. And I totally understand that because it is full of idiots sometimes. However, I think there's something they, they miss, they mistake the beauty of military life and the beauty of like the military person is their integrity is that they can be right. chosen to do something when no one's looking and to execute what you asked them, what you expected of them and right. to do so in good faith and whatever in chivalrous manner. However, I guess what I'm trying to say is what I suggest for America, which would, you know, insulate us from the negative depredations of, you know, malicious characters, as well as those people that are simply not, they don't have the requisite cap- capacity to govern and rule and to rule make, is that everyone goes through a service of conscription. And ultimately, it is only veterans who can hold like a significant office, even if it's like a, high up in a bureaucracy. I think everyone has to have gone through military service because even if that person might be a sociopath or crazy person, at least they have to pass through the selective gradient that might select out maybe 75% of them. Because when you're in a military setting, everyone knows what you're doing. You can't hide who you really are. And trust me, like first appearances, like that's the thing with Mm -hmm. psychopaths when they, you know, get into a a culture or community they have to leave often because they're always found out. They always do the short, yep. you know, the, the, the trade stock short of their social stuff to get short-term gains. In the military, you're around people for years at a time where you have to rely on each other. So people mm-hmm. come to know you intimately. Yeah. And if you're found to be, you know, dishonorable or someone lacking integrity, you'll get kicked out and you will get fucked. And it's, I think it's a good thing. It's a good mechanism. And I think uh, people will not like that. They don't like Heinlein for that reason. They call it, you know, they call it right wing or despotic. Or well, well, he he said you had to basically serve in a public fashion. It wasn't necessarily military, but it was more of to be a citizen versus a civilian. You had to demonstrate some civic virtue and and mm-hmm. civic mindedness. And I don't necessarily think it was through the military only, but I could be mistaken about that. So he only said that in 1973. 20 years after his initial Starship uh, Troopers publication okay. because he came under assault from liberals and hippies and all the other scum uh, yeah, of the yeah. earth that exists. All right, but let's so take that example. I mean, if I, if I can sort of interject at this point, um, or, or do you, did you want to finish? Sorry. 
long story short, what I'm trying to say is America doesn't have to stop being a democracy, but we do have to be more selective in who our leaders are. Yeah. And I think a <laughs> okay. great way of doing that is integrity and, and fortitude. But go yeah. ahead. No, I like that. I, I, I really do. Um, I think somewhere between there and Heinlein 1973 version or whatever would be an improvement at the very least. You know, you could fine tune it from there, but... I mean, what are we, what are we doing? We're, we're trying to make things better, right? So let's, let's take, take the good and run with something that will help us get there. Um, what I was going to say, and, and I, I mean that, I think there should be some, there, there needs to be higher standards for our leaders, first of all. I mean, you, you've seen how, first of all, how dumb they are these days, but I think that's, that's basically because they're more manipulable and corruptible. Um, but it would be nice if you had not just uh, intelligent, Congress, but also one that you could trust. Now, you know, it would also be nice to have more sunny days and uh, everybody gets a, a, a birthday gift on their birthday. And, it, you know, we don't live in Candyland, so how do we actually achieve that? Um, Is that a question or a rhetorical question? Both. I, I, it's it, If you have an easy answer, great. But I think it's a hard answer, hard question to answer just because the realities of a large ethnically diverse, confusing country like the United States, it's going to make it difficult because we don't have a lot of shared history. And so how do you come up with something that we all would be able to get behind short of like a military coup and forcing it? And again, my problem with that is not necessarily that I disagree with the military. It's I worry that it creates a ticking time bomb down the road. And if you, you don't have to look any further than Brazil because they have a history of coup after coup after coup after coup and it's very unstable i i don't really particularly like that i mean you talk about germany you know the prussian system and culture at least i mean they have a very stable democracy and, and arguably it's because they have a stable demographic right at least until recently but um that's probably important too so how do you do that in america i don't know but um i'm really not wedded to the idea of keeping the union necessarily intact at this point. But the problem is we have nuclear weapons. And so that is going to make things really, really difficult. And the military is, is a thing. Um, but what I was going to say was that, um, but I think these are good thoughts, but what I was going to say was that why did Heinlein get criticized in 1973? Well, that was basically the tail end of the Vietnam war. And the Viet I, I know you on Twitter like to put up imagery of the Vietnam War, and it's a very aesthetic war. I, I agree with you, and it's inspirational from a certain sense. It looks cool. It was a techno war, too, so I kind of find that interesting. But what the hell did the country gain from it? I mean, it really was kind of, yeah, you could say we had a reason to be there, but it was conducted in such a ham-fisted way it didn't work very well and we lost a lot of men because of it. Um, so I think there's a lot to be critical of in that war genuinely, not to say that it was completely wrong, not to say that the communist threat wasn't real, but there was a lot of shitheads running that place. And I know some people who actually served during that time who told me that he told me that Westmoreland was an idiot and Oh Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you do? You just you know, sign up and like, you know, what was the, the, the term? And, um, what was that movie? Full metal jacket, you know, where they actually, the good part of the movie, if nobody's seen it is the first half where they're just in boot camp. That's exactly, the best, that's the best part. Lee, Lee army. That's like what you watch fantastic. it for. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second part, it's like, eh, whatever, but it's like, you know, there's many apocalypse, 
uh, now or whatever that's called. Like that, that's a better w- actual war movie. Platoon is decent too, but Platoon's in that movie, what's that? Platoon is the best one for Vietnam, but continue. Yeah, but in in yeah, Platoon's good, but in um, uh, Full Metal Jacket, in the actual war part, they they sort of have like this version of like these stupid military leaders where uh, Joker, like the, the the Matthew Modine or whatever his character's uh, name was, the protagonist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like the the kind of wimpy guy. Like he goes in there and he's like, "Well, I don't know, sir. Like it doesn't really. Are you sure you want to?" Uh, it doesn't quite make sense that we're doing X, Y, Z. And the guy's like, well, are you just going to sign up and, and get get in for the big win? Or are you going to be yeah. one of those guys? And it's like, whoa, this guy is really simple, okay, to put it kindly. And that's kind of what you need in a chain of command, I guess, like just doesn't think about stuff. But if that's your leadership, you got a big problem. Um, so you need somebody who, frankly, audits them. And if you just have this really hard-ass military that is basically effing up, mm-hmm. uh, what do you do? you got to have a check on that. So I think there's some wisdom in having a civilian commander-in-chief. Now, there's problems too, but you know, w- we've had stupid wars, I think, in this country. You know, oh, sorry, I don't want to answer. No, I'm done. Go ahead. Go ahead. So... I mean, if you let me talk at length, because I think there are some misconceptions civilians have with the military, the American military. And there are, of course, things that I agree with that you have very positive, positively noticed, which is the military culture is all the way through. I believe it's 91 was based off of this very authoritarian in the Hannah ardent sense you know the huh. authoritarian mind you know like <laughs> the people the kind of people that like are very uncompromising uh stiff undynamic characters however that's not real leadership that's poor leadership and the american yes. military actually like i know this sounds messed up and i'm not trying to dog because my ancestors have fought in the American military like generation after generation. I've come from a chain of these men. So like I say this with all the love in the world, but we come from a weak military culture. The American military hmm. is not a good military, actually. It, we're just good at logistics and we're good at technology and we have a basic sense of discipline. Yeah. But it's the best militaries in the world, for instance, the Prussians. And mm-hmm. I'm talking – I'm not saying as a euphemism. I'm saying the Prussians specifically. Are there any other examples? Because um, I, I think that it's – becoming cliche especially in like the right-wing circles to sort of uphold the germans and i'm not saying it's wrong but the romans okay good yeah we want to learn something here so like add some to the right. list so you get the romans okay, okay good so so the prussians the romans the um greeks or not, not so no much. no not okay. so much um the because it's on discipline the greeks were disciplined but they were very fractious which is very different mm. Um, the Romans had solidarity. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the Spartans as well. I mean, if you're talking about history, uh, you know, samurai, the Japanese world culture. <laughs> of the, but they Bushido. were more like a clan system. It wasn't really a military. I guess you could maybe extrapolate, but it was such an internal system. I, I don't know. But I, 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 any kid who's a male probably loves samurai for a lot of reasons. But it's an interesting example to give. Um, I would say the British military and the Victorian era 
and that was oh. that was eroded away after America gained supremacy and basically subverted their country. I mean, because in World War II, they really didn't do too well. Um, they didn't, and it's exactly for the reason that you're saying. Basically, the um, British commanders were very. Um, stuck in their ways, reactionary in the original sense of the word, not just the communist sense. Like Montgomery, or, I don't really know a lot of them, but I'm just thinking of like that guy. Yes. He seemed like an obstinate ass. <laughs> I could be wrong. To be but... frank, he's one of the better ones. Okay, the worst, good. Okay. The worst commanders were actually this guy, this young guy named Richie something or other. Interesting. And he's the reason why Rommel was able to beat the British back almost all the way past into wow. uh, the Nile Delta. Wow. And it's because... Basically, he was undynamic of mind, uncap- incapable right. of being a good leader, incapable of reaching out to his men, exactly. and disciplining them in, in a positive way. Anyway, I think there is a good turnaround in American military culture, which is – I know this is probably cringe to some people, especially who are veterans, but Jocko Willink, his philosophy <laughs> of leadership – I like I him. I like him. No, no, it's okay. I, I get it. Um but he's I, he's I more like uh, blame yourself for everything, which eh, no, it's no, sort no, of the opposite no. of what you're saying, right? That is bad, but it, it, he seems to take it really far. Like, so it's interesting. It's a overcorrection, but his emphasis is that you take agency because right. it's right. easy to shift off blame. It's yes. easy to shift off. off and, and what happens, think about the cognitive process of someone that shifts yeah. off blame, shifts off responsibility right. uh, for the world is basically become a Bolshevik. It's always someone else and it causes yes. fraction. Okay, here, here's, the, here, here's the problem with that, though, in practice. Now, I theory, I get it. But in practice, if you blame yourself for everything, you can't make any decisions because you don't feel confident in anything. And that's part of the problem of being a leader. You have to actually balance two things at once to be a good leader you have to show courage, leadership, and making decisions when you frankly don't have time to look through everything. At the same time, you then have to accept that you're going to make a mistake once in a while and then not lie to your men about that was a mistake to the point where they they can trust you but also not lose faith in your ability to make good decisions. It's really tricky. Lose authority. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously that's the, he writes about that in the dichotomy of leadership and I highly recommend the audience read for their own personal, you know, edification on leadership. It changed my life, not just like my military career. What's his book called? Uh, he has extreme ownership, which I recommend starting and then dichotomy of leadership. But he talks about exactly this paradox where you're supposed to balance both. You're supposed to balance the, the bearing and the authority, you know, the authority that you have, the social authority while also, owning up to your mistakes, mm-hmm. being able to like tactfully understand, you know, how to walk that line. That's the art of leadership is walking the line. And, um, it's really easy to fall in, into, I am right no matter what, like, even if I fuck up, fuck it. And I disagree. I don't think taking responsibility for mistakes is actually paralyzing. I think it's actually the opposite. I think it's, it's catalyzing to action because you're mm. expected to make action happen. You're expected to be decisive and take yeah. action. And even if it's a mistake, it's basically like science. It's, you know, uh, just like uh, Thomas Edison, you know, you, you have to make mistakes to be able to find the solution, right? And ultimately, mm-hmm. that's what leadership is about, too. It's, it's about willing, willingly making mistakes, taking action, 
willfully and be able to make mistakes so that way you're able to succeed. Um, it's the one that's always on the attack that wins in war, not the ones that are defensive. I mean, this is why the Byzantine Empire collapsed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, one of the reasons, obviously, I'm going to have, I already know in my DMs, there's going to be some Byzantine chud that's going to be blowing me up about how the Byzantines were awesome. Who, who I know. Cares? Who cares? But, but it's really funny. But anyway, point being is that I, I think um, if America is to continue being a republic and a democracy, and I think as an American citizen. Well, those patriot, are not the same thing, but go ahead. Right. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that In other words, don't turn communist. Is that what you're saying? At least, yeah. you know, don't turn commie. Yeah. Yes. I think we already it's, are, it's just, unfortunately. I think we need, to, we need to do our best to reinstill uh, integrity, uh, moral integrity, not just in ourselves, yeah. but others, and be forceful enough to make them, like, uh, comply which is two elements, right? It's one is emphasizing morality, which is our problem. Liberty has led to libertinism, which has led to the subversion of society. And secondly, um, the ability to be um, like uh, tough love. Does that make sense? The ability to discipline yeah. people for their own good and for the greater good. Sometimes being able to, you know, just like in the military, sometimes you got to execute people for cowardice or for, you know, subversion or whatever. And guess what? Those guys have to live it with live with it the rest of their lives. However, you know, you can't be just thinking about one person. You have to think about the whole team. And America is a team. And I think that's something um, the bourgeoisie and the capitalists don't understand and libertarians in general don't understand is that they're so atomistic and so self centered that they are actually they are the reason why the bolsheviks have a foothold in our country you know what i mean like i i, I don't know i i think that's like something that people take for granted is that the merchant class needs the political authoritativeness of a military aristocracy where it doesn't exist it always devolves into bolshevism i mean you see this in the uh, french revolution where it started off as a middle class revolution uh, made of small business owners lawyers and etc academics and it quickly gave rise to the terror and then of course because there's the terror people cry out for a caesar they cry out for order and justice and just basic security and then you have napoleon my fear is that people will never wake up to that. They will never have the self, um, self-honesty, the willful self-honesty to understand that, like, you know, it's not enough to be bourgeois. We have to do justice correctly. You know what I mean? We have to be sometimes tough love. We need paternal tough love. We need less liberty sometimes. And I know that, like, Americans hate that because our entire credo is about freedom or whatever. But you realize that, like, that's not what humans really need. And the founding fathers didn't write liberty as a end in itself, but as a means to excellence. America is about finding excellence, not about liberty. And because no one ever reads the Federalist or the Anti-Federalist papers, they never have that context. But I've digressed too large, uh, too long and too far. But I think, you know, in the history of Brazil, um, I actually hold up Brazil as a an example of what can happen if Americans don't get their country together, if we don't start taking ownership of our own country and start thinking about more people than just ourselves. It's interesting. Um, 
I had a lot of thoughts there. We're kind of running long, so I'll probably rein it in somewhat. Um, real quick, why did Bolsonaro get elected? Why did he, quote unquote, lose if he did? And what are the lessons to take from that is, I guess, my main most important question right now. Bolsonaro won because of um, the disaster of the Lula Rousseff period. So the crime, um, the corruption, crime, corruption, okay. Okay. the lack of sanitation, the, like basically wow. basic social goods were compromised to the core all over the country. Got it. Corruption was so endemic. And then basically he, he won. Um, and the way elections go in Brazil is that every citizen is forced to vote. It's not just a right. It's actually a, a duty. You have oh, to vote. Oh God, that's bad. So what happens in Brazil, the way they do it is basically drug lords who are, you know, have a militia, they control an entire favela and right. then they, they sell votes to politicians. Oh, and so even, even favela livers, people in the favelas were getting sick of the crime. It was too rampant. And so they voted for Bolsonaro, even wow. in, in a corrupt election. And he won. Um, and then crime went down, things were improving economically. Yeah. And then of course, you know, the liberals had their way and they, and with the help of the CIA, of course, um, that's the thing I think people don't understand is that the CIA has very deep roots in South America. Uh -huh. And though that's the thing, I think people think that the CIA is this omniscient, omnipotent organization, but it's really just filled with idiots. <laughs> and it, it's really funny because it's definitely the CIA that changed the election and not like the GRU or the, uh, the, the, you know, Russian intelligence because, um, the Russians don't have strong, like hold on the elections in Brazil. Only the Americans really do. And somewhat the Chinese. Who who, who is saying the Russians flip the Brazilian election? That's to me, that's no one. stupid. No but, one. Okay. I'm preempting, I'm oh, preempting okay. some moron. That's like uh, neocon come up here and be like, oh, it was the Russians because you whatever. No, no. Oh, okay. it's the CIA that put the communists in power. No, no one, CIA... no one reads their their white papers even in Washington. They just uh, they have money. But go ahead. <laughs> and the funny thing is, of course, as soon as Lula got reelected, um, he <laughs> basically uh, strengthened ties with China and Russia, which was a massive geopolitical setback for the United States. So I don't know. It's just very interesting. Um, I think, I hope for the audience listening, I hope this was instructive enough at least to give you a t like a, a basic understanding of Brazilian society and political history. But the utility of understanding this more so than anything is to provide you with an example of where things could possibly go and are going if you don't fix it and ways to fix things. And of course, you probably wouldn't take the means uh, the road prescribed by Brazilian history, which is obviously a dictatorship or whatever. However, it should elucidate to you how how much force and conviction is necessary to rebalance the ship once it's been lost to a Bolshevik, you know, I guess, threat, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I really appreciate you having me on, brother, and I love the myth of the 20th century and um, I hope in the future we'll go into some topics like uh, the uh, military culture and stuff like that. But I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And yeah. uh, thank you so much, Adam. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Muito tempo eu fico 
A viver pelos mares Mergulhando profundo Em recifes e corais Minha missão nesse mundo É pesquisar animais Mergulhando no escuro Com perigos reais E por isso agora Que eu cheguei aqui Nada vai me tentar A fazer desistir Eu não posso dormir Com você nos meus sonhos Já conheço seu doce Seu olhar tão medonho E é sem ar que eu fico muito tempo eu fico E nunca fico rico Aí por isso eu grito Hoje eu te frito Sobre o mar, o horizonte Fico admirado cais quando o vento está calmo, tudo fica em paz Eu estou nessa trilha e não sei quanto tempo faz Eu não vejo sentido mais nos meus ideais E agora que eu fiz um acorde maior Pra cantar pra você Minha angústia e dor Não me deixe aqui Sem carinho e só Venha viver comigo Venha ser meu amor Porque eu não vivo a five years Quase não vi nada nesses five years Estar no mar azul é meu viver a five years e de norte a sul é minha sina five years Porque eu não vivo há five years Quase não vi nada nesses five years Estar no mar azul é meu viver há five years E de norte a sul é minha sina five years Porque eu não vivo há five years Quase não vi nada nesses five years Estar no mar azul é minha sina five years E de norte a sul é meu viver a five years Five years Oh, yeah Five years Oh Five years Five years